unknown vessel, this is Wayland Utani Anchor Point Station. Please respond. Troop transport Sulaco. Return. New? Kid bit me! Don't touch me! Oh, don't touch her! Bishop. Hicks. Weapons Division intends to develop the alien. Audible Studios present Alien 3 by William Gibson, starring Michael Bean and Lance Henriksen. And welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Devendra Hardwar. And Jeff Kanata. Welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, today, what we're going to be doing is counting down our top 10 films of 2017. Uh, that's going to be the whole episode. Uh, this is an episode that often people who we've lost along the way, they come back... And they say, hey, I don't listen to the show anymore for some reason, but I do still like listening to the top ten of the year. So uh, if you haven't been listening, welcome back. Uh, Subscribe to the feed. Take a poke around. See if there's anything you might like. Uh, But otherwise, hope you enjoy it. It's been a good year. Yeah, Yeah. it's been a really great year. It has been a good year. Indeed. We put out some good stuff, guys. Indeed, indeed. Uh, well, we, we have more to say about that, but uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com and uh, before we get into our top 10 films um, I wanted to just uh, give a few shout outs first of all I wanted to thank all the people that donated this past week to support the Slash Filmcast Uh, we have Dougal Thompson donating at the rate of $2 per month uh, to subscribe to this podcast and also Mike in Minneapolis who gave a very generous donation and who wrote the following message along with that donation uh, Dave Devendra and Jeff, this is a long overdue donation. You've given me at, at least five years worth of quality movie podcasts for free. Uh, of course, Slash Filmcast has been running for like nine or ten years, but uh, maybe this person just <laughs> discovered us in the last five years, which is awesome. What a deal for me, Mike says. It's time I start to show my appreciation for your hard work and dedication to the Slash Film Podcast. Whether it's Dave hating most things the rest of us enjoy, Devendra defending sci-fi that probably isn't that great, or Jeff loving everything and anything Marvel, I always listen. Uh, again, I'm going to pause here for a second. Sounds like someone who sounds like what someone who would say who doesn't like the show. But fair, enough. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. That's, I'm glad that, that's that's what we are, Dave. Our our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness. That's correct. Uh, anyway, Mike continues here. Uh, I'm sure it's a familiar story you hear from other listeners, but it's worth sharing my listening story. I listen to each and every episode up until the spoilers. At that point, if I'm planning to watch the movie, I stop and save the podcast to re-listen to it after I've watched the movie. Listening to the podcast is truly my second favorite piece of movie-going experience aside from watching the actual movie. It's like listening to people I've gotten to know over the years have a conversation, something that sounds easy and natural to accomplish, but I'm sure has taken years and years of practice. Anyway, enough with the praises. Keep doing what you're doing and know it's greatly appreciated. Uh, well, thank you, Mike in Minneapolis, for that uh, message and for the very generous donation. We really appreciate it. If you want to support what we do here on the podcast in 2018, go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast. Uh, and then enter an amount to donate. All the money you donate to us does help us go to defray the costs of seeing movies and putting on the show. So we really appreciate it, all the contributions we've had over the course of the last year, uh, it's been awesome. 
Also, something we like to do before we get into our top 10 of the year is talk about um, the the year as a whole in movie going and the year, year as a whole in terms of uh, the movies, the trends we've seen. Uh, and so there's a few stories I want to touch upon. And I think the biggest one is, of course, uh, Harvey Weinstein. What happened with Harvey Weinstein, all the women coming forward to talk about their experiences with him. And... Uh, and then the aftermath of that, like that story then empowering more people to tell their stories. I, I think it was Farhad Manju or someone else on Twitter who said like this is possibly one of the single most socially consequential pieces of reporting that's ever, like, you know, mm-hmm. been done in recent memory. And I think that's very accurate. I mean that single story, first in the New York Times, then in the New Yorker, uh, has just set – a, a series of events in motion in our society as a whole uh, that I think we're still in the middle of. And uh, I, it would be ridiculous to talk about any year of movies without talking about how this one story has roiled the entire industry. And uh, a lot of people have different opinions on how the industry should resolve it. You know, there's a leadership task force being formed and um, other suggestions have also been in the mix, but uh, wanted to just acknowledge that this is a thing that's happening, that the, the hashtag MeToo movement is here to stay, and I anticipate that we're going to see more of that in the year to come. For sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that has happened this year is uh, I think the movie industry is kind of in a state of crisis, guys. I think beyond, you know, one of my favorite writers this year has been uh, Richard Rushfield, who writes this newsletter called The Ankler. You guys had a chance to check this out yet? Uh, no. I'd I recommend it. It's a, it's a newsletter that you need to pay to subscribe to. It's like $40 a year or something like that. Uh, mm. I, but it's definitely something that, in my opinion, is worth the money. Uh, Richard Rushfield's been working in the industry, been writing about the industry for a really long time. And uh, he has uh, dropped a lot of insights this year that I, I've, have really stuck in my mind. Uh, and he did, he did an interview with The Weekly Standard. Uh, and and the, the title of the interview is, Hollywood is dying and not even Star Wars can save it. And one of the questions from the interview is, from the outside, it looks like Hollywood is undergoing four or five simultaneous crises. There's the systemic sexual misconduct. There's the worst summer box office ever. There's the precarious position of the theatrical releases and the theater experience. And there's the rise of streaming and Silicon Valley's incursion into the entertainment business. It's like the industry version of Geostorm. Is it really as bad as all that? That's the question. And Richard Rushfield's answer is, I'd say it is as bad as all that. For the reasons you described, which I'll go back to, the movie industry in particular has lost the plot. It's lost sight of the reasons why people go to the movies. It's been so focused on what movies can you market, which is generally shorthand for what movies will people show up for without you having to convince them that they actually should. In particular, Hollywood has lost sight of the way that people under 30, the ones who used to be the core audience, consume entertainment and what sort of experience they are looking for. End quote. So, uh, I, I think there's a lot of uh, insight in that whole interview. I'm going to read one more excerpt from it later, but uh, it, it is a very dire time, I think. Uh, overall, I think mm-hmm. box office revenue is up, but uh, number of tickets sold this year is stagnating or decreasing, which is definitely not where you want to be as an industry. And of course, guys, we all remember how crazy the summer box office was. Uh, so crazy that Devendra was somehow able to win number one in the summer movie wager. I mean, that's yeah, how you know. Yeah, you don't at all, Dave. That's yeah. how you know how unpredictable it was, right? Was that, <laughs> it was that Devendra could win. We're in the golden age of television. In fact, I think the thing that brought adults to the movies in previous generations 
is now the thing that brings adults to Netflix and HBO and Amazon yeah. Prime streaming. Th- those kind of experiences are very few and far between uh, on the big screen. And the young people are watching their YouTubes. <laughs> and the older people are getting much richer, deeper narrative experiences at home on television. And Hollywood seems to be the way they seem to be attacking that problem is just give you bigger and bigger spectacle. Mm-hmm. And I've already been framed this episode as the Marvel guy. So be it. I'm a Marvel <laughs> zombie from way back, but I do, uh, I do look at the Marvel of Hollywood as being an, a net negative. You know, I yes. think yeah. Marvel doing that is a, is great. I love how Marvel has done it, but everybody doesn't need to do it. And it, and I think it is, um, is diminishing the product on the big screen overall. Yeah, Yeah, uh, something that this interview went into that I thought was – I've just been thinking about a lot since uh, I read it. It was about what is the difference between movies and TV shows, right? And in the past, uh, us on the podcast have tussled extensively, especially when I put the uh, OJ documentary on my top ten last year. uh, There was much – disparagement of that decision I people almost, are currently fighting about twin peaks the return whether i mean that's just ridiculous uh, there's I, no way that should be a movie guys I I, almost, really <laughs> i almost put vietnam on my list just to spite uh-huh. you mm. yeah yeah i feel like the arguments for twin peaks is just as strong as the argument for the aj show was so <laughs> uh well how about let's to start with uh i think to be a movie it needs to have been shown in a movie theater at some point but mm. anyway uh, so something in this article that I thought was uh, – this interview that was fascinating was uh, Richard says, quote, For me, there's a line between movies and TV shows that matters even more to the future of movie studios than the direct financial questions. That's the sense of a new movie being an important cultural event in a way a new TV show premiere, with very few exceptions, is not. To boil this down, movies for me are about space. They are relatively condensed experiences, just a couple hours, but heightened when they are good by the intense craftsmanship that goes into every moment. That's why you can see your favorite films a hundred times and still find something new. Why people watch them over and over again when they can recite the dialogue by heart. There's this heightened reality that makes film special and begs to be seen in the best possible circumstances. Television shows are about time, about building relationship with characters over the course of years. Game of Thrones didn't become a vital experience until the second or third season after we'd spent 15 or 20 hours with the characters. That's why in the great shows, the relationships of the characters grow over the years in a way they might not if you were going to the theaters to see The Godfather Part 27, end quote. So I think the, the – you know, if, if I'm to reach for what is the difference between movies and TV or what, what should be the difference, the idea of movies being these cultural touchstones – uh, that feels very compelling to me. And I think one reason that movies are failing in a lot of ways is because they have lost sight of that. They've, they're, they've glommed onto other things like how marketable a movie is or how much money can it make or how many toys can they sell from it or how many universes. Is any of that any new? Like, I, come on. We, we, we were hit there during the 90s in the comic book movies of the 90s. Like, you saw those Joel Schumacher Batman movies. They're... What was going on there? I feel yeah. like this is – it's everything we've oh, 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 seen Oh, agreed. Before, it's not necessarily right? new, Devendra, but the yeah. difference is I think that uh, every studio tried to have its own Batman this year. And sure. not yeah. everyone succeeded. You know, In I, a shared universe Batman. Shared universe Batman. And yeah. I, so I, the, the box office is summer. I'm reading from BuzzFeed report about this. Uh, for the first time in 35 years, domestic box office grosses for the summer, uh, which traditionally run from Friday of May through uh, Labor Day weekend, are down – 
18.5% from year to year. Grosses have not been this low since 2006. This isn't just bad. This is a history-making disaster, end quote. I mean, it, the other, it was a rough summer for uh, The other movies. difference between the 90s and now is that there was an independent film movement happening in the 90s that sort of was filling in that lower layer uh, of of cultural filmmaking and sort of cinematic filmmaking. And you're not really seeing that anymore. That doesn't happen. It's been squeezed out, I think. Yeah. And what's happening is those filmmakers who have those kinds of ideas are working in television. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I completely agree. I think what we're seeing is a squeezing out of the middle. I mean, uh, even just look at a company like Fox Searchlight, which used to dominate uh, the indie scene. You know, th- that domination is going away largely because a lot of those indie movies are going to the streaming companies like Netflix. Uh, and yeah, we're, we're just seeing like the middle going away. We're seeing massive, big Hollywood blockbuster movies like Avengers Infinity War. And then we're seeing tiny, tiny, tiny movies like Split or uh, what's another Blumhouse movie I saw recently? You know, like those all the Blumhouse movies. <laughs> Happy Death Day. Happy Death Day. You know, like those <laughs> movies that cost $5 million to make. Uh, and there's not that much There's not that much in the middle in around the 40 to $50 million production budget range, which makes a movie like Baby Driver, which is made for about that much, uh, kind of a miracle. You know, you just mm-hmm. rarely see movies that are made for mid-range budget that aren't based on anything. Uh, a, get made. B, get released. C, do well. And so uh, it's just a, a challenging world out there. Devendra, what were you going to say? I was going to say that newsletter did mention tech, you know, the tech companies getting into this. And we talked a little bit about Amazon, but Netflix is getting into the movie world, too. And who knows how their strategies are going to affect any of this, too, right? Like I wrote a thing about Bright. Uh, Netflix greenlit a sequel to that movie, you know, which cost around $100 million. Before it was even released, uh, they probably had some data that would do really well. Uh, but you know that movie is not good. It checks off a lot of algorithmic tick, you know, check boxes, but it's not necessarily good. And I wonder if like we're going to end up in the cycle where you know the algorithmic performance is better than the actual quality of the movie. Even though yeah, I think for a long while we thought Netflix and Amazon were some sort of like savior for movies and focusing on quality and letting the artists do their thing. I don't know. I do not know the road we're going down now. Well, it's an interesting thing where the the metric is different, right? If you have a movie. Mm-hmm. That opens, you look at how many people went to see that movie and yeah. how much money that brought into the studio. If you have uh, a, a studio, Netflix, Netflix uh, is working effectively as a studio, $8 yep. billion dollars to, to the tune of $8 billion a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just have a completely different metric. They don't care how many people... It's just it's kind of like kind of like uh, HBO and television, right? HBO doesn't care about your Nielsen rating; they care about the prestige level of having that programming on their station, so that people feel like essential, uh, HBO is essential. And that's mm-hmm. Netflix's idea as well: is as long as we are essential, as long as you have to maintain your subscription, we don't care whether or not you watch the shows. If you just feel like you should be able to watch the shows. Or, or if you eventually watch the show. Like right. in yeah. six years yeah. from now, if you tune into Bright, then it, they'll, you know, their algorithm will say maybe, hey, it was worth making Bright. You know? But uh, it's not even that. I think, I think it's even farther than that. It's, it's like if you want to be able to be right. the kind of person that watches Bright, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? If Bright is the kind of programming that mm-hmm. makes you feel like, oh, man, I better have Netflix because crazy interesting stuff is happening on Netflix – it doesn't matter if you watch it or not, as long as you feel like you should be subscribed to it. 
Mm-hmm. Well, according to Nielsen, you know, Netflix famously doesn't release the numbers. According to Nielsen, 11 million people watched Bright on its opening weekend. Uh, so that is a lot. That's like if everyone paid to miss, uh, a ticket, paid for a ticket to see that movie, which I'm not saying they would have, but it would be mm-hmm. you know around 100 million dollars. So uh, I'm guessing they will factor that in as a success, but. As you said, Devendra, what does that say about what kinds of movies that will be made in the future and whether they'll be any good, uh, mm-hmm. I think, is is an open question. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention from this interview that I thought was really insightful was he said uh, about how, like, this year we've seen tons of bombs. Quote, I would say uh, in recent years you've had one great crowd-pleasing films that bombs and makes people say, gee, if people don't come out to see that, we're all in trouble. But this year, all the big bombs were ones you could see failing a thousand miles away without the least question about why no one turned out for it. The paradigm is actually reversed this year. Traditionally, you've got one big, horrible, expensive disaster every year. The $300 million how-did-this-happen train wreck that became, uh, becomes a nexus for months of schadenfreude. The John Carter of Mars or Howard the Duck slot. But this year, you had four of those. King Arthur, The Mummy, The Dark Tower, and now Geostorm. And a whole bunch of way underperformers such as Alien Covenant. Disney has led the way into this era of big IP, the idea that it's so expensive to make a movie that if you start uh, out with a property that doesn't have a built-in universal name recognition, you're doomed. The problems are, one, there's only so many universally beloved comic book heroes and sci-fi franchises to go around. Two, if you don't have your hands on any of those, you still have to make movies. And three, as Hollywood is learning, a terrific name, even one with 1,500 years of built-in awareness like Arthur Pendragon, doesn't necessarily mean a good movie. End quote. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is the year we saw uh, the the continued implosion of movies that were based off of properties. Uh, you know, remember, there's a whole period of time where everyone's like, oh, hey, let's just make movies off things that are in the public domain that everyone knows about. <laughs> Robin Hood, Arthur, you know, King Arthur, uh, all, the Jungle Book, all this stuff. And, of course, some of that. There is succeed. another Robin Hood movie coming, by the way. Yes, there so, is. Yeah. I love the idea of somebody sitting in a room and being like, it's got 1,500 years of name recognition, guys. <laughs> All the undead will come out to see it. <laughs> yeah, and just like that doesn't necessarily make it a good movie. It doesn't necessarily mean people want to see sequels. Uh, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, that movie was set up as uh, a movie that would spawn a bunch of sequels, right? I mean, right. if you – not to give too much away about this movie no one's seen or will, but uh, the end of that movie strongly implies that there's going to be more and, of course, uh, never happened. But I so, think that's the way – that's what all these – these studios want is the thing that's going to spawn a bunch of sequels. And that's the only reason they spend the kind of crazy money it takes to make a big summer blockbusters is we're not just investing in one movie. We're investing in a whole suite of movies. And that is hard to do. It's hard Mm -hmm. to get that kind of, uh, that kind of mega hit that people want to keep coming back to over and over. And and on that note, I should say, you know, looking over our top 10 lists, uh, it's very few of the movies on our top 10 list, A, cost over $100 million to make, and B, uh, are part of a, a franchise or, or you know are expected to spawn sequels. And I think there's mm-hmm. something to that. Like Basically, what I'm saying is most of those kinds of movies that came out this year weren't very good. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's kind of been unfortunate to see in that way. All that said, I think this has been one of the best years for movies – in terms of the the quality of the films that we've ever seen, right? Certainly, it, it, the, one of the hardest I can remember to make my list. I had a mm-hmm. really hard time narrowing my list to ten, 
Yeah, and, and, and I so don't remember he, it being that hard before. Even as the industry is doing pretty badly overall, uh, movie making as a, as an art form, as a craft, is is thriving. Uh, largely because of this bifurcation, like most of the movies that did really well are really, or, or that we thought were really good, are very, very small movies. You know, movies made for a very small budget, under $10 million. Uh, that's where a lot of creativity can thrive. That's where artists, artists are given more creative freedom. Uh, it's been interesting to observe this year. I think 2017 has really opened our eyes in terms of uh, how bad things can get from both a business perspective, but also in terms of uh, how powerful people treat non-powerful people uh and i expect that we're going to continue seeing the consequences of that next year uh all that said let's let's move on from our conversation about the year and move on into our top 10 movies of 2017 now before we get to the top 10 of 2017 I want to also mention that after we discuss this we're also going to talk about our honorable mentions and we're also going to talk about our most anticipated films of 2018 so so stay tuned after the episode for that as well uh but we have to start the conversation about our top 10 films of 2017 by giving a whole bunch of caveats right one is we didn't see every movie that came out in 2017 uh, yes. And not only that, we didn't even see most of the movies that came out in 2017. Uh, a lot of film critics do this as a job, a uh, full-time job, and they see, uh, you know, 150, 250 films in, in a year. Uh, and we just – none of us do this as a full-time job, and so yeah. we haven't seen a lot of the movies that came out this year. Real critics also get piles of screeners sometimes, which is very helpful for catching up in December. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway – Wanted to just say, yeah. if your movie uh, isn't on this list or any of our lists, there's a high possibility we haven't seen it. Now, are there many mm-hmm. any regrets that you guys have about uh, movies that you didn't have a chance to see before you made this list? Jeff Canada. What- yeah, definitely. I mean, I didn't get a chance to see Call Me By Your Name, which I really wanted to. There, I think there's about a half a dozen movies that I had as potential, like got to squeeze them in, and I just didn't get to them. Uh, Darkest Hour is on that list. Um I don't know. There's a, there's a few, I think, even on your guys' top tens that uh, I haven't gotten a chance to see yet, and it makes me sad. Yeah, Darkest Hour is one I, re- I regret mm-hmm. not having a chance to see. I didn't see any of our screenings from uh, Phantom Thread, so I didn't have a chance to check uh, those out. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to see Phantom Thread till the new year. But those are really the only two that... Oh, Mudbound have... is another one that Mudbound, I, I wanted yeah, to see. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't have a chance to watch as many documentaries as I would have liked. You guys know usually I pull for the documentaries in the top ten list. I don't think yeah. there's a single documentary on my list this year. And it's just because I didn't have a chance to see a lot of the documentaries. Uh didn't have a chance to see uh, The Work, which I've heard is a brilliant documentary mm-hmm. about uh, prison group therapy. Uh, there's a documentary called Step about dancing that I, I've heard is really good. So didn't I have, have to, to tell you, those. Dave, not to spoil anything, but I am. there's one movie I'm shocked was not on your top ten. Mm. And that is the the tickling documentary. Oh, uh, <laughs> I, I believe it was on my top ten for last year, Jeff. If oh, was it for like, last year? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I thought we talked about it this year. Sorry, we did talk about it this year, but I <laughs> it was on my top ten for last year. Uh, David Ferrier's movie called Tickled is a, is a great right. film. So, uh, yeah, so those were what I regret not seeing. Davindra, anything you want to mention that you didn't see before uh, we get to our, our number ten? Mainly, I Tanya. I think like that's something I've heard so much about, and a lot of people were talking about it. But I've seen most of the. I think the major movies I think are going to be a big deal um, going into the Oscar season and everything. All right. So those are the things we haven't seen. Uh, and the other thing we should mention is that uh, – like let me ask you guys. I usually ask you guys this at the beginning of each of these lists is 
Uh, were there any organizing principles, any trends, <laughs> any things you saw uh, like emerge after you uh, made your, your top 10 list this year? You know, like we usually try to make a statement about like what this top 10 list represents. <laughs> it's a hard year. It was a hard year. I don't remember more movement in my list uh, in any previous year. I've, I have futzed with this list more this year than I can ever remember. And trying to, for me, the 10 movies were hard enough. Uh, there's a, there's a bunch of movies that I'll mention in my, uh, honorable mentions that probably could have made a top 10 easily and didn't, but even harder that harder than that was the ordering of these movies. Like, I feel like I could jumble up my, my 10 in a, a different jumble and just be fairly satisfied <laughs> with, with a different numbering. So it, uh, as we said, the overall quality this year has been really, really high. And there's been so many movies I've fallen in love with, which is, uh, I think, a very great thing to say. I was watching uh, Movie Bob uh, on YouTube give his top 10 movies of the year. And he just said all the, he dropped a bunch of uh, truths about his list that I just thought, hey, like, that's kind of true about my list, too. And he basically said, you know, first of all, you, you might see my, like, me create a top 10 list for other places. You know, some places might have, you might have published a list online. Critics societies often ask you to submit a top 10. Uh, and he was saying, oh, my top 10 list might be different depending on where you see it. Because sometimes your list changes from one time when you make a list to another time when you make a list. Other times, um, you might know that a society or a group is voting one way and so you want to try and give more love to this other uh, movie or a group of movies because ultimately the, the goal of any list is to get people to try and see some of these movies, right? That, that, that was his, his uh, philosophy is that really the only reason we're making this is so hopefully – it's not to be a masturbatory, hey, don't we all like the same things? But it's to say, hey, if you haven't seen this movie, you should go see it because it's really amazing and we think it's like one of the best films of the year. I mean it's a uh, little bit that masturbatory one. <laughs> that masturbatory, yeah. Uh, and then uh, he also said <laughs> something that – he said basically the ordering of none of these matters except for number one, which I think mm-hmm. <laughs> I think uh, is fairly true for us as well. Uh, may, yes. uh, although I guess, Jeff, you're saying you agonized over the ordering of this. I did. I had I had three different movies in my number one at, at, at any given time. Wow. Um, so okay. I've, I've had a really hard time with my list this year. So I think in the past what I've said is that uh, the the ordering gets more accurate the higher up on the list. So probably like three to one, I feel really good about that ordering. And then everything else, I'm, I'm not as strong mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Uh, if I'm to think, you know, the, the thing that I, I think of when I, I think of my top 10 list is like movies that tried to show us something new and different than what we would usually get at the movie theaters. And uh, I think if you've been reviewing movies on a podcast for about 10 years, uh, you tend to prize novelty more than I think a normal person would prize novelty, and so I do want to just say that that's that that is one of my biases is I will always prize something that's novel and original and bold and that I can't see in any other movie this year uh, than something that's already been done, even if it's executed really well. So that's interesting. I don't think I have that same bias. I think. My bias, and this probably will surprise zero people who listen to the show regularly, uh, my bias is, is movies that speak to me on a sort of human emotional level. Movies that say something about the human experience that I find to be honest and true. Right. And, and to be fair, and, that also is, is part of my uh, logic as well. But uh, 
I'm I'm also saying like the, another part of my logic is that it's something bold and original, you know. So, mm-hmm. but I, I understand. That's, I'm just we're confessing to our biases before we get to the top tens. So, uh, Devendra, anything else you want to add about your list? No, I mean it's. Uh, I feel like my number one, my one through three is pretty much an order that I think is set. Yeah. The rest of my top ten, honestly, my honorable mentions could be in there given you know a different day of the week or something. So it's more like a top twenty for me this year. There's just so much good stuff. All right. One final thing, which is that in the past, we usually just go like all of our top tens, all of our number nines, all of our number eights. And last year, while we were recording this, Jeff called me out on air and said, hey, this is a bad way to do it, Dave. (laughs) What we should do is if someone has, you know, a movie at their number 10, that's also someone's number one. We should just wait until the person's number one uh, so that. We don't need to uh, – so that we can have the conversation all together at one time and so no thunder is stolen, right? At the movie's highest point, right? At the movie's highest point on anyone's right. list, on anyone's And list. for the first time ever, Dave listened to something I suggested. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. Uh, so this year, if someone has a number 10 choice that's later – that appears later on on the list – uh, we're just going to hold and have the whole conversation together. Uh, spoiler-free, no spoilers, but we'll, we will try to have an in-depth conversation about that movie. So all that said, let's get to our top 10 films of 2017. Jeff Kanata, start us off with your number 10. My number 10 is Mother, with an exclamation point. We have Mother? a... Mother? Mother? Support you. Support me. You just want to tell me what I can and can't do. That is do. not fair. Never believe in me or anything I try to do. Don't, don't do this, Dad. They hate me. Come on, they don't pay. The signs are here. They're just barged in. I couldn't stop. I know. Yeah, but don't waste them. Shut up. Here we go again. This movie, I think, is uh, incredible. It spoke to me on a very deep level. You can go back and listen to our episode about that if you want to hear me say exactly why, although that episode has become sadly problematic at this point because of a guest who has since embroiled himself in uh, that Me Too controversy in the most appalling way. Uh, But I still stand behind all of the comments that I made about the movie in that episode. It it is a sprawling, ambitious, weird film, but one that absolutely spoke to me. It made me understand my wife on a on a level that I hadn't before, which is a truly, uh, I think, amazing thing to say about a piece of art, that it made me reanalyze the, the relationships in my life and look at the things that I do through my wife's eyes a little better. Um, I, I, I think Mother is ambitious and crazy, but crazy in the best possible way. You know, Jeff Kanata, uh, Mother is also my number 10 choice. Synergy! This is a movie I have not been able to get out of my head since I saw it. And I actually uh, watched all the special features for Mother (laughs) recently over the break. Are they Uh, good? uh, There is a 30-minute documentary on the making of the film. And it just – I think the production cost of Mother was around $30 million. Of course, it – is not the most expensive movie. It all takes place in one location, uh, although some crazy stuff does pop off at that location. But 
you really appreciate how much work and care goes into a movie, even of this scale. Uh, they had a literal house that they built in the middle of a, like a meadow somewhere to, to be uh, the house on location. And then they had to build a set for when some of the crazier stuff starts going on in the house. <laughs> uh, and there's like... Uh, uh, I, I don't want to say anything about what I saw in the making of because I don't want to give anything away about the film. But suffice to say, uh, the last half of the movie, uh, there is just this kind of um, descent into madness, let's say, that yeah. uh, is incredible to behold. And I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a really uh, bold film because it is so what seemingly personal to writer and director Darren Aronofsky, who was uh, dating the uh, main character or the um, the actress who plays the protagonist uh, while he's making the movie. It's like very, very personal and kind of like in a way that's uncomfortable, to be honest, you know, in a way that yeah. mm-hmm. makes you feel like you're pr- prying into someone's personal life. And that just takes a lot of... Uh, boldness and uh, chutzpah to, to kind of put yourself out there in that way. So for that alone, I think it's worth worth noting. But then uh, how skillfully it's made, you know, uh, we pointed out during our review that the entire film, like 99% of the film is three shots. Uh, it's from her point of view perspective, like over the shoulder or a close-up of her face. That's the entire film. And it really does immerse you in that character's perspective in a way that's uh, that's unique in movies, I think, and uh, it creates attention because of it. I think that I found to be uh, thrilling. I, I throughout the whole movie, I was just on the edge of my seat because of how it was shot and how confining it felt, and just being inside her confusion. I felt confused and and tense throughout. It, it's it's a remarkable just mystery in the first two thirds as well. It's a movie that also provoked a lot of different interpretations you know jeff you interpreted right. it as a commentary on like art uh, uh, the one that resonates most with me is the uh metaphor Religion. of it being a you know it's a metaphor for uh the, the creation story you know the bible like all all the stuff that happens in genesis it, that's what i feel like uh happens in this movie but people have all these different interpretations of what it means uh yeah. I, I think it was angie han who said hey uh, that there, she talked to five people who were like, "Oh, well, the, the metaphor in the movie is obvious," and then they each gave a different version of what it was. Right? Yeah, <laughs> that it's a, it's a movie that spawned all this like people feeling really strong about it and feeling strong in really different ways about it. Um, yeah. and just it's, it's it just, painted so broadly too, right? Like I think that's that's the key to it. You can read so much into it because of the way he doesn't get too specific about the story right. or the story he's trying to tell until like after the movie came out and then Aronofsky wouldn't shut up. So <laughs> I'd say the best way to go into mother is not to read anything Aronofsky said. <laughs> at yeah. all. Even though literally at my screening, there was a paper with stuff Aronofsky <laughs> said to read oh, before God. the movie. Yeah. I do just want to point out one last thing, which is I think the craft, the, the, the filmmaking in the last half of mother is exceptional. I mean, I think, Throughout. Yeah, throughout. But just so much stuff happens in the last half that, like, I can understand why that would be the point people would jump off board the movie. Because that's – if you conceive of the movie as, like, a a realistic, you know, (laughs) down-to-earth retelling of a story, you know, even in the form of metaphor, then the last half of the movie kind of – uh, does away with a, a lot of that. Like it's hard to take the movie literally. It's hard to take the movie literally, basically, um, because of what happens in the last half of the movie. And I understand why people don't like 
a movie that you can't take literally because most movies you can take literally most movies what's happening on screen is what's actually happening you know in the reality of the film uh and this is a movie that, that you can't really do that for uh but the way it's it's made and shot and executed and and the way uh background artists are deployed it's just uh a marvel uh, of a film that i just haven't been able to stop thinking mm-hmm. about like this that it- last half of the movie i just can't get it out of my mind and it's not necessarily a movie i'd recommend to to people in general <laughs> but it's still a movie that i just like okay yeah like at, at the end of the year there's all these movies i'm still thinking about and that's one of them so yeah, yeah. mother by darren aronofsky it's out on video on demand uh and blu-ray i think and mm-hmm. it's jeff and my number 10 and i just want to say i think it is the sort of movie that will when you watch it could change the way you watch movies and the way you think about movies. And that's what's powerful about it because any, like literally if you're reading any form of art, you literal interpretations are not usually the best way to do it. You know, there, there's so much more going on that you can bring into it. And this is a movie that really proves that. And I'm sad. I couldn't even fit it into my list this year. You know, one last thing guys, I'm going to say that I think this is probably the best Jennifer Lawrence performance I've seen. You know, Mm. I think she is great in this movie in a way that I think is very unacknowledged right now. I don't hear yeah. a lot of talk about her being in the best actress race, but I, I don't know. My, like, I feel like I think between Silver Linings Playbook and the Hunger Games and the X-Men movies, like this is the best that she has been. And uh, I think it's kind of a bummer that that's not being like, – she's not more in the mix for this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting, so, yeah. Anyway, uh, that's our number 10 mother. Devendra, your number 10 – uh, it appears later on someone else's list. So yes. we are going to wait to discuss it. And I, I can't even all... announce it. I can't even announce it. it yeah, that's the right. The there. That's right. And also, all of our number nines, Jeff's number nine, Davinja's <laughs> number nine, my number nine, uh, we are all uh, appear later on someone else's list. So we, they're all that's different movies. you got there, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, all, they're all different movies. But they all uh, appear later on someone else's list. So let's get to our number eight. Devendra Hardwar, what's your number eight movie of 2017? My number eight is Logan, James Mangold's uh, second Wolverine movie. I think this movie is just fantastic. It, it reinvents how you tell a superhero movie. Um, it is very much a Western, uh, like so many of uh, Mangold's films. Uh, and, you know, I, I think brings these characters to a point where we've never seen them before and kind of finalizes some of these stories between uh, a lot of characters we've seen on screen and the actors portraying them. I I think it does a lot of cool things at the same time. It's also a kick-ass action movie and one with such an emotional core that I cannot watch this movie without being a bawling mess by the end. I I think the, the final frame or the final shot of this movie is probably the thing that made me cry the most Oh wow! Uh, in the theater this year because it is it's so it is so haunting. It's so beautiful, and for you know, if you're like me and the X Men mean a lot to you, I think uh, it'll really hit you hard. So yeah, I love Logan. All right, uh, number eight uh, for me was also Logan. Synergy, uh, yeah, synergy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I love this movie. You know, I, I remember uh, hearing James Mangold talk about it on Jeff Goldsmith's Q and A podcast. Uh, which is, I, I mean, j- this movie and the press tour around it has basically been an excuse for James Mangold to uh, weigh in against modern superhero filmmaking. Uh, he's yes. just gone off yeah. on it and said, it's terrible. You know, it, something he said was like, the Avengers, you know, there's 10 characters. 
the movie is 120 minutes long. So that means like each character gets you know 12 minutes of uh, of character development. That's assuming no action scenes, right? So then if you cut that in half for action scenes, you know each character gets like five. Like he'll do the math and say basically modern uh, superhero movies suck. That's kind of his whole uh, mentality. Is <laughs> I think he still feels a little resentful after the Wolverine, uh, the last you know Wolverine movie he made, which I think got really messy towards the end. Even though I love that movie too, just not as much as this. It's always good when someone explains why art sucks using math. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, he, he kind of talks about how, you know, a lot of uh, uh, modern-day superhero films are cramming in all these characters, and uh, there's no time for any character development or character moments, and they're often trailers for future movies, or they often service mm-hmm. trailers for future mm-hmm. movies. Uh, and he just had was not interested in any of that, so he had a lot of preconditions for when he made Logan, uh, including that it had to be rated R, and it had to be the la- like they had to close out what happened to this character, and there had to be no possibility of future renditions for this character, or at least in this form, <laughs> you know. So uh, it, it's his anti-modern superhero film, and I think it achieves it wonderfully. Uh, love the performance that Hugh Jackman puts into this movie um, mm-hmm. and love uh, what it does with the character, how it imagines the character uh, and uh, love the relationship between him and Laura played by Daphne Keene, who also does a phenomenal job in this film uh, as, a, as kind of uh, an action star. Yeah. Uh, very convincingly plays that. So really just, just a brilliant entry into the franchise uh, and uh, hearing him talk about – hearing James Mangle talk about uh, the ra- the R rating, something he said mm-hmm. was, you know, the MPAA, the people who give the ratings, are, it's kind of – the way they assess things is kind of like pornography when it comes to violence is the, – the question for them is, is there any penetration, right? So uh, showing someone getting stabbed is fine as long as you don't show the knife going into the body, right? So knife going into their body, that's rated R. Uh, you know, you're showing them get stabbed, but you don't see the knife pop out of the back of their, you know, their body. It's fine. PG-13. Yeah. That, is a, for a, for that is a problem movie. for a yeah. character who has knives <laughs> growing out of his hands. <laughs> right? uh, and so uh, it was... What you're saying is if there was a character with penises growing out of his hands, it would be hard not to have... It would be very challenging to not have an R rating. That's correct. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, this is the first time I think we've seen... Uh, Wolverine do realistic damage to people. I, I, I've seen the Wolverine, the movie, the Wolverine uh, director's mm-hmm. cut, which kind of had more blood. But you know, in this movie, we see him cut off limbs and stuff. Uh, it feels like the, the first like true representation of this character mm-hmm. that we've seen. I kind of love that was if you, Mangold had like tweeted some of the first uh, pages of the script for this thing, and even the script was like, "Yeah, this is not your normal superhero movie." Limbs will be chopped off. Blood will be everywhere. And that's not to say every superhero movie has to be like this. But I think his specific vision of this character, all his movies have always been focused on the characters, right? Copland, 310 to Yuma. This guy, I, I've he's been kind of a quiet powerhouse of a director who's never really gotten as much attention as I think he deserved. And Logan is kind of his chance to shine a little. So I'm glad he got this. Yeah, Logan also did really, really well. It made 600 million dollars worldwide uh mm-hmm. and the budget wasn't as high i think it was around uh 110 120 uh the budget which compared to like an avengers movie or an x-men movie would be more like 175 or 200 
So it wasn't made for as much money as a conventional blockbuster. It made a ton of money, and so it's kind of one of the few stories this year that I feel good about. You know, that mm-hmm. this movie uh, took a superhero franchise in bold new directions. Uh, wasn't made for that much money, and it made a, a great return for all the people that invested in it. Uh, so yeah, a- awesome story all around. That's Devendra and my number eight movie of 2017, Logan. Jeff, your number eight is mentioned elsewhere on someone else's list, as is your number seven, right? So uh, let's get to Devendra and my number seven. So it sounds like uh, we have a lot of uh, the same movies. I swear we did not plan this, but Devendra, you and I had the same movie for number seven as well. (laughs) Synergy! (laughs) Super synergy. This is why we have a podcast that's going on for nearly 10 years, right? <laughs> Devendra, what's your number seven? My number seven is Lady Bird. Hey, guys, that and... was my number nine. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So now we can have this conversation. Now yeah. let's have this conversation. So, Jeff, why don't you start us off? Because you, theoretically, you had it earlier on your list. Well, no, I think you guys should. You guys <laughs> rated it higher on your list, so you guys should talk about it. I just want to say that I also put Lady Bird on my list. That was my number nine, and you guys put it at number seven. So go ahead and tell me why Lady Bird is your number seven. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it's a coming of age story and we've seen so many of these, but I think uh, Greta Gerwig who wrote and directed this movie, there is such a specific voice here, such an original voice. I love everything about this film. I love Saoirse Ronan's performance. I love how uh, I love Laurie Metcalf in this movie. It's a, it feels like a true to life representation of just growing up as a teenager and the struggles with that and having well-meaning parents that you don't always agree with, but at the end of the day, they love you and, you know, want to help you. Uh, I, I don't know. This movie just works on many levels for me. And I feel like it's one of the truest movies I've seen this year. Yeah. I really love this movie as well. I think the thing that I love most about it is the relationship between Lady Bird and her mom played by Laurie Metcalf, which mm-hmm. in my opinion, Laurie Metcalf, I mean, they're both great. But I think Laurie Metcalf is one of my favorite performances of the year because she really gets at uh, what it's like to be uh, a mom with a child that doesn't quite jive with you. You know, a a friend of mine once posted this Instagram photo of their children uh, and it was like on one of their birthdays. and, And this friend who may or may not be listening to this podcast said like, you know, I love my children, but I'm also glad I like them. And... I had never really thought, you know, because when you're growing up, your parents love you, hopefully, and you never really think of uh, your parents liking you as a separate thing. At least I, I didn't. And when I read that, this is many months ago, I thought, huh, yeah, like I guess some, sometimes parents can love their kids but not like them. And this is a performance of a mom who loves her child but does not like her. And uh, I, I just thought that was very profound in, in how it captured that dynamic of wanting the best for someone but just not really getting along with them you know and uh, I, I think it's even uh, there's even a little tweak that i would put on that it's not even not liking them it's wishing they were different mm-hmm. yeah it's sure. I, lo- I love my kid but i want them to be different yeah and then they are and and i think that's a that's a little subtler difference than than just not liking them it's not liking who they are it's wanting them to be a different thing and for a lot of parents, I know I have a lot of friends who whose parents wish they were different than they are and are constantly trying to fix them and ma- manipulate them into being something different than they are. And that's a tough thing for a parent because all of those things that are mixed up in wanting the best for your kid and loving your kid and thinking your experience 
can help them understand what's best for them gets in the way of their own life. And uh, there are not enough movies that deal with that because I think it's a very common human experience. It's a Mm -hmm. beautiful thing. Yeah. There is that. And also Lady Bird herself, though, is dealing with a lot of issues and is honestly kind of an asshole during this movie, too. (laughs) Like it does get to that thing of teenagers working so hard to rebel that they push away the people who are trying to help them. And I never got the sense that Lady Bird's mom didn't want her to be who she was. It was more like she wanted her to be happier in her skin. And that's a tough thing to reconcile. I think you're right, Devendra. I think that's a good point. And I think that ultimately the journey of Lady Bird in the movie is coming to realize that her mother was right about some stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's everyone's journey. It's pretty much every every child's journey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think what, what, one thing this movie also captures that I really appreciated is uh, – I don't know about you guys, but the Chen household, uh, we were shouters. You know, were you, were you guys shouters? Did you guys ever shout uh, in the household? Not really. Italian yeah. family, yes. Very much so. Yeah, and, and there's this just weird dynamic where if you're in a family together, you're basically stuck with these people for many, you know, decades, right? right? And there's this you're dynamic yeah. that this movie captures that you can be literally screaming at someone. Right. For a good, you know, five minutes. And then like three minutes later, you're like, okay, you want to like, let's go to the store. You know, like we're going to like go back to our normal way of talking. And uh, that's just a very odd dynamic in families that I don't feel is captured very often in movies Mm -hmm. uh, that this movie, I think, captures really effectively. So Uh, going going from an argument to like genuine connection to like there are several moments where it's like not just going to the store, but also like, hey, look at this thing. And oh, man, this is so beautiful. And we both like this thing together and we have this connection. It's going from disconnect to connect on the, you know, the drop of a hat, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jeff Kanata, any other thoughts? Any reason why this wasn't higher up, Jeff Kanata? <laughs> well, uh, there's just too many movies that I uh, I think I loved slightly more. But like I said, it was it was hard to put the exact order this year. I, I just think, for me, Lady Bird is beautiful and certainly worth everybody's time. It is uh, a movie that definitely earned its spot on my list. I just struggled with putting it above some of the movies that had a bigger impact on me. But uh I loved it. I think the performances are amazing, and it's a it's a movie that I think will stand the test of time. I I suspect this will be one of those like cult films that's going to connect to a lot of teenagers. And uh, funnily enough, I you know I was connecting with the dad in this movie. You know, like I I'm in that position now as a new father, where now I'm starting to to relate to the parents. And I think it's to the movie's credit that it resonates both from both directions. Right? It's clearly written by someone who is telling her story from Lady Bird's perspective, but she does such a good job of writing all the characters that you can relate to her antagonists, quote unquote, mm-hmm. uh, just as just as strongly. I think, uh, you know, you're saying how it will be discovered as a cult classic or whatever. Uh, this is actually a successful movie at the box office. Like it is not more just, successful than any of it, uh... it is the most successful A24 mm-hmm. film ever released. So yes. it, it made thirty one million dollars so far. I mean, it's it's doing very well. Like for, for a movie of this scale, I think that is a, a smashing success that has already become part part of our culture. So I, I, I would say it's not going to be a cult classic, Jeff, because it is already a mainstream classic. Uh, Fair enough, but uh, I just think it's gonna it's gonna have that cult following. Agreed. I think there's gonna Mm -hmm. be one of those movies that like older sisters recommend to their younger sisters, or you know, it's gonna be I think word of mouth kind of uh, popularity. Also, Mm -hmm. we should point out that A24 has had probably one of the best years of any distributor ever. 
Uh, I mean, let me read you a list of movies that A24 came out with this year. Uh, the Black Coat's Daughter, Free Fire, The Lovers, uh, It Comes at Night, A Ghost Story, Good Time, The Florida Project, Killing of a Sacred Deer, Lady Bird, The Disaster Artist, The Ballad of Lefty Brown. Uh, just many, many movies that uh, not necessarily were all hits, but that were all uh, really high quality. Yeah, high yeah. quality, critically acclaimed in Amazing. some way. So yeah. they, they had a great year, I think. Quite a I list, think. Yeah. for sure. Um, okay. So and Lady Bird being their most successful one this year uh, and of all time. I was just thinking. I, I just watched uh, the Disaster Artist the other night, and when you were talking about the special features on Mother and how they built the the house and then had to build it again as a, as a set, I was reminded of that scene in Disaster Artist where they're about to shoot on the the alley set, and he's like, <laughs> "It looks exactly like the alley that's literally right outside." He's like, "Yes, but this big Hollywood movie, you have big Hollywood movie set." I thought that was funny. <laughs> All right, so Lady Bird was Devendra and my number seven. Um, now, for number six, Devendra and I have choices that also appear later on the list. So, Jeff Kanata, why don't you take us through your number six? It's The Meyerowitz Stories, which um, was a Netflix original film. And I absolutely adore I believe it's it. called really... The Meyerowitz Stories New and Selected, is it not? Mm-hmm. Indeed, yes. Parentheses, New and Selected. Um, this, uh, I think, again... A, a movie that resonated with me that I felt uh, was beautiful and subtle and uh, presented a side of uh, familial relations that you don't see too. I mean, I guess you, you kind of see it, it. It is familiar territory in the sense of uh, artists, father and kids that can't live up. But I think it has some new and interesting things to say. Uh, I thought Dustin Hoffman's performance was amazing. Um, Ben Stiller is in this. Adam Sandler is in this. Uh, all all delivering, I think, great performances. Uh, I loved this movie. I mm-hmm. I really did. I'm sad that neither of you guys um, put it on your list at all. I really uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, it just didn't crack it for me to top ten. Just haven't had a chance to see it myself. So. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, I think you'll I think you'll like it, Dave. It is. Um, I think it's a, a great use of language, and that's something that always I think clicks for me. I love it when a movie uses language. And I, I just I loved that relationship. And, and again, kind of like we talked with Lady Bird, it is it is a in, in this case, the the parental uh, antagonist is self-obsessed and narcissistic. And sort of that is his his central problem. But it is, again, that kind of love you but don't like you or have a problem, uh, have a problem expressing my like because I want you to be different. And I think I know better than you do about your life. And it is a family that loves each other very deeply, but can't seem to get on the same uh, wavelength of that mm-hmm. love. That, that that love keeps missing. It, it keeps. Um, it's how they have problems expressing it. They have problems uh, syncing up and giving each other the things that they need out of that relationship. And I thought it. I thought it was a really beautiful story and funny and fun too. All right, that's Jeff's number six. It's the Meyerowitz stories. It's on Netflix right now. Gentlemen, let's get to our number five. So we can finally start talking about our choices now. Um, so <laughs> number five, Devendra, you chose for your number five uh, a movie that Jeff chose for his number eight, and I chose for my number six. Okay. So Devendra, what was your number five movie of 2017? The Big Sick. So, uh, 9 11. 
No, I mean, I've always wanted to have a conversation with about it with people. You've never talked to people about 9-11? No, what's your, what's your stance? What's my stance on 9-11? Oh, um, anti. It was a tragedy. I mean, we lost 19 of our best guys. Huh? That was a joke, obviously. 9-11 was a terrible tragedy. And it's not funny to joke about it. I love this movie. And honestly, um, mostly because the script, I think, is fantastic. Uh, written by Camille Nanjiani and his wife, Emily Gordon, and retelling their story. Uh, I think this is a great movie about comedy. It's a great movie about relationships, but also about, like, you know, trying to exist uh, in America, it's a it's a story about an immigrant family and being an Indian or a Pakistani American guy trying to date and trying to have a relationship in America too. Like it, this movie goes through so many things, and I think uh, it covers a lot of different experiences that we don't typically see represented. And I want to say too, like it's uh, I think pretty sharply directed. It's not a showy film, but uh, Michael Showalter, who directed it, I think did a solid job of bringing this thing to life. So I love this movie for sure. Yeah, uh, I also really appreciated this. Like you said, Devendra, my big reason for putting it as my number six was uh, I think it tells this story of an immigrant um, and, and how challenging it is to to be an immigrant in, in America mm-hmm. um, for cultural reasons. And, and there's this, this baffling dynamic that happens where your parents, uh, you know, my parents certainly who, who came here, uh, they immigrated to the U.S. They came to the U.S. because they wanted us to have a better life, like our family to have a better life with more d- choices for education and so on. But they also didn't want us to uh, like absorb the ways right. of America too much, right? You can't you can't break from from the ways of uh, of your people too much. Uh, and so it's like, well, who determines how that is balanced? Like, who mm-hmm. like what are, what are the arbitrary things that you're saying? Like, we should. Uh, ignore from our past and and take from this future place that we're going to be in, you know. Um, and I, I like that the movie really captures that dynamic uh, in in a, in a very funny and beautiful way, uh, For sure. uh, along with this kind of crazy story of uh, of modern love as well. Like, there's a lot of yeah. a, a lot of uh, topics that this movie tackles that I think it does in a in a very mm-hmm. sharp way. Modern love is one, and, and how that takes place in in our society. Um, and also, like, immigrants trying to, to thrive in, in our society. Um, so for these reasons, that's why it was yeah. my number six. Jeff Kanata, uh, you put this as your number eight. Eight. So yes, uh, I love it. Love it, love it, love it. Um, it. Like you said, it's funny and fun. The The love story is playful and so genuine and sweet. I really love as much as I appreciate the things that you guys have been saying about the movie too. I I, I really love the way it handles uh, this this notion that you don't just date someone; you date their entire family. Mm-hmm. And a lot of movies, most movies that even touch on this, handle it in a sort of meet the fuckers way of just like pure comedic wackiness of, well, their, their parents are so crazy; it's hard to, do. but. <laughs> He, he, here's a movie where it's really two love stories back to back, right? It's a love story of uh, 
boy meets girl and then a love story of boy meets girl's family and falls in love with them. And Mm -hmm. I just, I thought that was so wonderful and unique and different. And that second love story is just as beautiful and just as sweet. And, um, you don't ever see that. And I think, you know, from my perspective as somebody who married someone whose family I really like and love as well, I resonated that just that level of the movie Mm -hmm. resonated and, uh, it's a sweet film. It's really beautiful. And I think it's, um, very much deserving of being a best picture nominee and on all of our lists. Yeah. And that, that whole second section, by the way, powered by great performances from Holly Hunter and Ray Romano, Ray Romano, who I always love in dramatic stuff. Like he was great in parenthood. Like he's had a great run after everybody. Men of a certain age. Yeah. Yeah. Men of a certain age. I haven't seen that show as much, but I just, this movie uses him to great effect. You know, his sort of like sad sack lovableness uh, at the same time. You can't help. Yeah. You can't help but want him to be happy in a way. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's Devendra's number five, my number six, Jeff's number eight, the big sick. Let's move to Jeff's number five movie of 2017. Jeff Kanata. It's Molly's Game. It is Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut um, based on a script he wrote. Jessica Chastain is phenomenal in it. Um, As I said last week, I just really dig poker movies. (laughs) I really do. And I dig Aaron Sorkin dialogue. I am a sucker for it. I don't think I've ever seen anything he's written that I didn't like. He brings it here. It's fun. It moves quickly. It delivers all of that fun Sorkin stuff of smart people bantering, <laughs> smart people, you know, engaging in, in a fencing match of words, uh, which I just I could eat up. I could watch that all day long. I want if I could have Aaron Sorkin write everything, including reality, I would be the <laughs> happiest guy ever. Um, and Molly's game delivers. It is it's fun. The poker stuff is fun. Where you go in the movie is fun. I think her relationship and the things we find out about her uh, are are powerful and resonated with me as well molly's game is great and it was i think very hard for me to put it as low as five but that's where it sits on my list i struggled mightily with whether to put molly's game on my top 10 because i think in terms of pure enjoyment of a movie it is it is probably in my top 10 of movies like in terms of how much I just loved watch the experience of watching this movie. Yeah. It is just so entertaining. Uh, and I'd recommend it to anyone, basically. Po- poker or not, I mean, you should know the basic rules of uh, Texas Hold'em, I think. Otherwise, some stuff will be hard to follow. But it is... I mean, you a, get the idea. Yeah, yeah. Even it's just, knowing, it's so. just so much fun to watch. Uh, this movie is so much fun. Um, and Jessica Chastain puts in an amazing performance uh, in this movie. Aaron Sorkin... Uh, at the top of his game, not not just as a writer. He, this is his directorial debut. He's he's like making really interesting decisions as a director. Uh, like from a craft perspective, I really like it. But I just couldn't put it on my top. I couldn't get over that hump, Jeff. I think because I felt ultimately the story just felt a little bit too slight uh, for me to put it on my top ten. Um, yeah. But but that doesn't take away from it, like how much. Absolute fun it was to watch, and and the fact that I recommend it to anyone. So, uh, Molly's game, great choice for number five. Uh, that's for Jeff Kanata. My number five movie of 2017 was Dunkirk. Let me take a quick poll from you. It guys. was Devendra's mm-hmm. number ten, by the way. Yes, yes Devendra's number ten. Let me take a quick poll from you guys. Uh, which movies did you guys see more than once in theaters this year? 
Because for uh, me, Star Wars. Yeah, <laughs> Star, yeah, uh, Star Wars: Last Jedi, uh, Baby Driver, and yep. Dunkirk. I think those were yep, mine. Dunkirk and Logan. I saw a couple times. Yeah, mm. yeah. So uh, Dunkirk is one of them because it's one of the the movies where seeing it in a theater definitely adds to the experience in, in a variety of yeah. ways. I mean, first, it, it honestly might be the only definitive, like the only way to watch this movie, right? Because doing agree. it at home. Even in a, th- in a home theater setup, you're not going to get the same thing. You, 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 you literally movie. aren't getting the same thing because yes. uh, yeah. a lot of the picture that was shot in IMAX is not available uh, yep. at home. You know, I yep. just had an experience where my wife's uh, – somebody from my wife's family uh, texted her asking if they should watch Dunkirk. Uh, it was on, I don't know, some streaming thing. And I was like, I don't – I kind of – don't think I can even recommend that. Yeah. Like, you should only watch it in a the biggest format possible. And I also saw um, – I'm a big fan of the Pod Save America guys. And I think it was Dan Pfeiffer who – or somebody from Pod Save America tweeted that like probably not the best way to watch it. But I just watched uh, Dunkirk on the back of a, a <laughs> seat on an airplane. It was pretty good. And I was like, you – it yeah. physically hurts me to hear yeah. that. I, I don't want to sound elitist or anything, and saying this sounds definitively elitist. It's just like, I think uh, I wouldn't have even put Dunkirk on my list, but a couple of weeks ago, uh, I saw it again in IMAX uh, here in New York, like the last week it was running. It was actually a couple of days after the Blu-ray release. It was actually already out. Um, and that and swung your decision. That swung the that, top That 10. swung me, because this movie, <laughs> it is, it is so big like that's the thing like it is a big grand vision it's essentially even though so much of it's about sound i think it's constructed like a silent film wherein like the dialogue and everything doesn't matter as much it's more about the imagery and how it's all connected in the editing and getting that experience um you know even seeing it in a normal theater i think would be great at home uh unless you have a huge 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 screen or you have a home projection set up and surround sound and everything, you're not going to get like what this movie is really trying to do. Uh, that, that's that's the tough thing because it's not really about the dialogue. It's more about this pure cinematic experience. It's VR without you know VR headsets in a way. Mm. Uh, so Dunkirk is my number five just because yeah, it, it is an unparalleled cinematic experience uh, that somehow manages to be extremely terrifying and heartbreaking while still maintaining a PG-13 rating in a war film. Uh-huh. You know, And there are sequences of this movie that have rarely been attempted in the past uh, and that are clearly inspired by other war films uh, you know, of eras past that are just uh, really uh, a wonder to behold. Uh, and everything comes together, the acting, the cinematography, Hans Zimmer's score – uh, to create what is a very foreboding mm-hmm. and and scary experience of being like part of this group of men uh, trapped in this location with like the world closing in on you. Uh, this it's movie just, is all sound and fury. Yeah, and that that's that's it. Yeah, yeah. You just uh, don't want to complete the rest of that quote. <laughs> but not. But it, uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I don't. I don't think it does mean nothing. I think. I think there is uh, a, a real. There's value in like trying mm-hmm. to give us a piece of this history through modern day cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a big fan of it. Is my number five? Is uh, your number ten, Devendra? Jeff's not on your list at all, right? That's right. And I don't disagree with ninety percent of what you guys have said. It, it is truly a, a a marvel to look at, a marvel to hear. It, it is uh, an experience in. The theater, I saw it in 70 millimeter IMAX. It, it 
was not like anything else. And, and that I think certainly gives it import and, um, you can't take anything away from that. For me, the reason it didn't make my list and never challenged my list is I just felt like the fundamentally it wasn't much. There mm-hmm. wasn't much there. Like it, it was a moment in time. It just didn't add up to much. It was, it was, it felt like a sequence from a bigger movie that somehow was its own movie. Yeah. And, that's okay. Like I understand what he was going for and you certainly are inside that moment, but it just, it didn't feel substantial enough as a film, as a, as, as, as a sentence. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like it didn't, it didn't have, it wasn't a complete sentence to me. Let me uh, try Well, let me try and sway you. Someone uh, in the chat room, Stephen Rivers says, Stephen Tobolowsky had some great tweets about Dunkirk, uh, a great summarization, which I, I had not actually seen, um, but reading it now, it's, it's quite compelling. He says here, um, Dunkirk is a story uh, he, says, he says here, Dunkirk I will never forget this film It burned a hole through me Christopher Nolan masterwork I've heard criticisms that if you didn't know what happened at Dunkirk You still wouldn't know True, <laughs> but this film isn't about Dunkirk Dunkirk is only a backdrop In Dunkirk, time ceases to exist as it does in most films Where the viewer is safely watching a story unfold What f- unfolds here is ordered chaos and sudden death But what emerges is a miracle Honor, nobility, heroism, but no fanfare, only survival. Dunkirk mm-hmm. is a story told through the fog of war. As a viewer, you are immediately through into a state, thrown into a state of confusion. You move through the overlapping narratives, and day becomes night and day. Or was it night? You were underwater, in the air, nowhere. Uh, so this is a few tweets from Stephen Tobolowsky about Dunkirk. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 talk, it doesn't even conflict with what you said, Jeff. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like what this movie does is so effective at kind of immersing you into this environment uh, yeah. that just like on a pure craft level alone, it is remarkable and, de- and, and deserving of recognition. That's yeah, it. I don't it's, disagree with that. I yeah, don't disagree yeah, with that. Yeah. It sort of feels like cinematic beat poetry, right? Like boom, <laughs> yeah. bang, yeah, like you're, you're, It's like yeah, right it. into a situation, but like no context, right? No yeah. broader implications, like no context, just like this is a, a singular experience. You have it and then you leave and, mm-hmm. and ho- hopefully you think about it afterwards. It sort of feels like something Nolan's been building up throughout his career, right? Like I remember when we were talking about the dark Knight, and people would argue about the editing of that movie and how he would connect certain sequences or how, Oh man, uh, wasn't Bruce Wayne just like in Gotham and now he's in China. He's in Hong Kong and what's happening here. And it's the way Nolan has been trying to tell his stories. Inception has a lot of this too. Um, of just like he is compressing time and experience in a way that I, I think in a way only cinema can, you know, he is one of the purest filmmakers right now. And this movie just really shows it. It's definitely an untraditional narrative. And I, I don't even know, like I kind of want to buy this uh, on 4k Blu-ray just as like a sound demo. Uh, but I don't know if I'd be able to like really take in the entire movie that way. This is my favorite of the movies that Christopher Nolan has made in the last five years. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Interstellar and Dark Knight Rises. I think this is a far superior film to both of those. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, so, you know, I was listening to uh, the Blank Check podcast, which is a great podcast that I recommend for anyone. And uh, the, the, their whole podcast is talking about filmmakers who who uh, got successful earlier on and then we're given a blank check to make whatever they want you know m night Shyamalan's a good one 
Uh, and Christopher Nolan kind of follows that path where he, you know, he made Batman Begins, and then he got a blank check to make The Prestige, and then he makes The Dark Knight, and then he got, uh, you know, a chance to make Inception. Um, mm-hmm. But his blank check movies are so successful yeah. <laughs> that they become like movies that you could make a blank, like would give him yeah. a blank check. You know, like and so bold and yeah. so inventive. Like no matter what you think of Interstellar, what is that movie about? That movie is about like it is about relativity. And it's about how it affects our emotions and our like that's that's another compression of time thing as well. Like I, you could really tell what he is focused on. But what is Inception about? We're diving into dreams. What the hell? And this is a James Bond movie. Like I love that he takes these concepts farther than anybody really has in film. It is so cool that we have one filmmaker out there who people are willing to just give two hundred million dollars yeah. to to yeah. make a movie and give a ton of marketing to, and who has final cut and he can just make whatever the hell he wants and he he does it. Not by making franchise movies, not by making superhero movies, but he does it by making original uh, movies that explore these crazy ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just – even if you even if I don't like his movies on an individual basis, I'm glad Christopher Nolan is out there, you know, doing work, creating crazy shit and just like uh, – <laughs> like using all the blank checks he's been written to, to create amazing <laughs> stuff that often is very successful. Yeah, uh, sure, just... but I don't I don't think that it's interesting to me that you guys talk about him as as the crazy idea guy because I think Dunkirk is the opposite of that, right? I I, th- I don't think it has anything to do with ideas. It is about experience on a visceral level. It is about yeah. being in that place and not having any ideas not but understanding that what's going is the on idea, but, but just like, like being on a beach with narrative. like yeah being yeah. on a beach with like you know what was it like you know a hundred thousand dudes or whatever you know and, and figuring out a way to shoot that and to to execute it, it just that like the idea you're right the idea is not hey we're diving into people's dreams it's we're stuck on a beach with a hundred thousand guys yeah uh, you're right the idea is not as crazy but i think the execution is just as crazy as oh as for sure yeah. for sure but it, and i think as davindra says the idea of removing idea is a crazy thing in and of yeah. itself and just kind of creating this pure pastiche of, you know, like of, of just experience. It's it's like it's it, it is it is almost dreamlike in and of itself because it doesn't it has a hard time holding together. But you are so inside the the experience of that chaos that that is what is powerful. Yeah. You know? Instead of using like a traditional narrative, he is using the power of film editing to connect you to a gunshot happening here, to something happening over there, and to all these characters. We don't even know their names, but we still feel something for them, and I found that kind of astounding. Yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, my number five choice. Uh, lots to discuss, guys. Uh, but uh, my number five, Davinder's number 10, not on Jeff's list at all. That's Dunkirk. Let's move on. Number four. Getting get tense now, guys. Getting tense yeah. now. Devendra Hardware, your number four choice of 2017. My number four is Call Me By Your Name. And this was a really interesting thing for me, too, because li- I literally saw this movie yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it it could just be one of those things of it being really fresh in my mind. But I spent a lot of time agonizing over my list. And this movie just floored me. This, I think, is the singularly most romantic thing I've seen this year, and this film is Luca Guadagnino's uh, story about a young seventeen-year-old who begins a romantic relationship with the, you know, research assistant of his father, and it explores a gay relationship. I think in a really refreshing way in a film, but also there, are, there's so much here. Like the backdrop of this film is like the Italian countryside 
in the 80s and everything is drenched in sun and like there's such a clear sense of like eroticism throughout the whole movie uh you will not look at apricots and certain <laughs> fruits in the right you know the same after watching this movie there's just so much going Sounds on like here a threat <laughs> it, is, it is certainly a threat uh but it's it is so beautiful and so lovely and i think the emotion of like being a teenager and being infatuated with this older person who could possibly never really be into you, but maybe they can, and maybe you have this special bond and maybe it may not last forever. And what does that mean? And how does that affect you? And being a teenager, I think in many ways, this feels like a um, companion piece to Lady Bird because it is all about that. Uh, it is a coming of age story in a really specific place. And also funny enough, uh, Timothy Chalamet is in both films. Um, he's just had an incredible year. Um, I, I think specifically with his performance in army hammers, they really sell this movie for me. And there's just so much going on here. I also really loved uh, Michael Stuhlbarg who plays, uh, Timothy Chalamet's dad and who is, I think, the most supportive father figure I've seen in the movie when it comes to relationships. Ever like, in the history of mankind. Ever in the history. And it's probably a little, definitely a little fantastical, I'd say. But it's also like if, um, you know, Laurie Metcalf and Lady Bird felt like mom goals in a way. Um, I feel like Michael Stuhlbarg for me in this movie is dad goals. Mm. Like just mm. being purely supportive of your child and their relationships and maybe what they're going through is not conventional, but your job as a parent is to support them and give them, you know, the structure to explore that and to grow as a person. So yeah, with all that said, I think this is definitely one of the best films of the year for me. Uh, let's call me by your name is Devendra's number four. Uh, I saw this movie a few nights ago, Devendra. Uh, a lot of people were telling me, you got to see Call Me By Your Name before you make your top 10. Did not make my top 10. I, I have nothing against this movie. You know, I, yeah. I think um, I understand why people enjoy it. Uh, it's it's kind of just not, not my jam. You know, it just kind of okay. di- didn't didn't resonate with me in the way that it resonated with other people. I understood what I was trying to do. It is trying to uh, give you uh, – tell this romantic story in a way that's usually – not told on screen you know it's not like mm-hmm. a uh, like a rom-com it, it, it tries to capture uh the unfolding of a romantic relationship in a much more realistic fashion uh, again I, I appreciate what i was trying to do the the film is beautiful apparently uh the entire film was shot with one 35 millimeter lens uh, oh, so like it's from the same perspective and uh it, it looks amazing but mm-hmm. uh just kind of kind of didn't connect with uh me on the level that i was hoping for so mm-hmm. for that reason it's not my top 10 but uh definitely can see why a lot of people like it and definitely can yeah. see why it speaks to a lot of people so let me tell you guys like i've seen a lot of things in normal public screenings this year this movie the final like 10 to 15 minutes of this movie there's a conversation that happens my entire indie theater was just bawling. weeping like they were just weeping openly yeah bawling and you could hear people like gasping for breath and like it was it was intense in, in a way like just on a relationship level i you know people cry a little with ladybird and everything because that's i think that movie has a great ending a beautiful little poetic ending but this movie just feels like devastating in a way too it's kind of heartbreaking kind of beautiful uh yeah it's definitely something that's effective for me Let's call me by your name, uh, and it's Devendra's number four movie of the year. Jeff Kanata, your number four film of 2017. Well, as I said earlier, first of all, I'm really sad I didn't get a chance to see Call Me By Your Name yet. Um, yeah, it's on the list to, to see very soon. Anyway, uh, my number four 
is uh, what? It was Division <laughs> number six. <laughs> uh, it's the Phantom Thread. And I think there was just, a little just discussion. Just Phantom Thread, I believe. Just Phantom Thread. Yeah. No, the. No, no, no. My movie was The Phantom Thread. Very different <laughs> film. Uh, no, uh, Phantom Thread. I think there was some discussion before we started recording of whether or not this is even considered technically a 2017 movie right. or a 2018 yeah. movie. But I saw it in 2017. Um, It'll be my number it, one of 2018, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, it is quite something. Um I'm such a, a fan of um, the work of, of all of these artists. Daniel Day-Lewis, the fact that this might be his last uh, acting role, I, I find to be a crime against humanity because he is just infinitely watchable. I mean, I just can fall into this movie by just studying him and looking mm-hmm. at him. But he is not even the only interesting thing going on. There is so much – to watch here. There's just the, the world of these, these, uh, 1950s couture fashion houses is fascinating to me. That's a topic that I've never been fascinated with before, you know, like the fact that this movie makes that fascinating. And that's merely the backdrop upon which this, this love story is played out. Uh, and it is an unconventional love story to say the least, uh, but it is uh, a movie that I just was mesmerized by. I think that is the perfect word to describe it. It is a mesmerizing film. You are mesmerized by the performances, by the the sort of uh, grandiosity of that world and the people that inhabit it and, and the the kind of lifestyle that they lead. And by the food these, they eat. Yes, everything. Man. There's so much detail in the movie. And I'm mesmerized by the relationship that emerges that is so unconventional and strange and hard to dissect and unpredictable and, and has weird turns at the end. It is, man, what a movie. What Another mm-hmm. one of those movies that's stuck in my head and I've thought about uh, long after I saw it. Yeah. How about it you, is, uh, you ranked this as your, uh, what was it, number six, right? Number six, yeah. And uh, I also saw this movie just a couple of days ago here in New York and – it, it yeah it gobsmacked me like it is it is gorgeous um it's enigmatic if you if you've seen that trailer or heard any bit about this movie like there really isn't much of a plot here it is you're just kind of you're following the life of this dressmaker uh he is honestly kind of an asshole and i was beginning to get worried throughout the movie like uh, oh man are we just watching another movie about like a genius asshole who everybody just tolerates because he's supposedly a genius but he can treat everybody like crap um and the movie i think partially is that and then it starts to subvert that in really beautiful and interesting ways um didn't expect it to be funny it is genuinely funny too um and very romantic and beautiful like we were saying uh, there's just so much going on here. Um, I think I just I love what Paul Thomas Anderson is doing now um, with things like The Master and Inherent Vice, which I also loved and just rewatched after this and also feels like a this movie in a weird way feels like a perfect follow up to a yeah, to a movie about a stoner 70s detective <laughs> in California, uh, because there was the same underlying thread of like. Uh, of sadness and loneliness and like hopeless, uh, hopeless relationships in a way too. Um, and I love the way he is kind of elliptically exploring these topics now compared to like, you know, I like his earlier films too, but something like Magnolia, I, that movie is just so much 
It is yeah. trying so much, and it's it's really it's long, and it's really trying to. It has its heart on its sleeve in a way. And whereas I think the mature Paul Thomas Anderson, who's kind of grown into telling these stories in a slightly uh, lighter ways, and I think in slightly more oblique ways, um, that is far more interesting to me. So yeah, this movie, Dave, can't wait till you see it. You yeah, think you'll I, love it. I think you're gonna love it too, Dave. It's so funny. Uh, I had a relative over the holidays ask me if I'd seen that movie about the guy that sews things into people's dresses. <laughs> and I was like, if that's what you think this movie is about, I, I'm so excited for you to see yeah. it. <laughs> that's a thing that happens in this movie, yes. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what you think the the idea of this film is, whoa, mm-hmm. are you in for some excitement. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's Jeff's number four film of 2017. My number four film of 2017 is Your Name. Uh, and this is the movie uh, Makoto Shinkai's uh, anime film uh, mm-hmm. that's part high school coming of age story, part teen romance, part body swap drama, uh, part, <laughs> part action, disaster film. Yeah, part disaster yeah. film action thriller. <laughs> you know, like uh, it's it, it is a really you know, here's one thing that I think this movie does really well is. It captures the sense of this sense of longing that mm-hmm. uh, people in general can have uh, more than any other film I think I've seen this year. You know, uh, longing to be in a different place than where you are. Longing to like if you're in the city, you want to be out in the countryside where things are simpler. If you're in the countryside, you want to be in the city where um, like more of culture and society happens. Uh, you want to be with someone who is far away and, and unattainable or unachievable to, to be with that person. Um, th- this f- movie really captures that feeling in a really profound way through a fairly uh, crazy plot and uh, <laughs> that, that combines many different elements of sci-fi and of drama and uh, romance. So I really th- love this movie and, and thought mm-hmm. it was uh, – it just did a, a lot of different things that I haven't seen movies try to – like balancing all these different tones and all these different plot mechanics. Uh, and the movie's beautiful as well. It's just uh, the, yeah. the illustration and the animation is beautiful. So. Beautiful digital dur- animation, yeah. During our review, I, I seem to remember Devendra liking this even more than you, Dave. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so and but Davindra, did, it didn't just, make your list. Yeah, well, it's on my honorable mentions, and as I said, I feel like uh, depending on my mood, anything in my ten through twenty or my eleven through twenty could easily be in my top ten. So I do, I feel kind of bad that I didn't get to fit in here, um, but at the same time, like there are things I, I think I want to highlight some movies that are still playing in theaters too that people can go and experience in that way. It is funny to me that there is this movie, and then there is Call Me by Your Name this year. It's getting yeah, really guys, confusing. It's almost like you tried synergy and just couldn't yeah. quite make it. We were a couple four. words off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's my number four choice. It's your name. It's out on Blu-ray right now, and I'd recommend uh, mm-hmm. if you haven't had a chance to check it out. It, you know, it had a had a theatrical release, uh, but anime movies in theaters don't tend to do super well. Uh, or just wait for the uh, American live-action remake, which is coming soon. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. it did yeah. do but it did movie... do extremely well. It is the most successful anime yes. film of all time. So I should say. Yeah. It it did do extremely well. Uh, made three hundred fifty five million dollars worldwide. Yeah. Just in America, it hasn't really really caught on in a way that. that uh, I do I hope, hope it's the start of a trend, though, because seeing this animation and seeing just something like this projected on a giant screen, like that's 
it's so beautiful. And I feel like we've lost that in a way. Just we don't see traditional animation very much on big screen. So, yeah, want more of that. Yeah, agreed. Uh, your name, it made $5 million in the U.S. It's so crazy to see that in the box office mm-hmm. chart. Like $5 million <laughs> in U.S., $355 million worldwide. Uh, yeah. The movie's your name. Check it out. Okay, guys, we're down to our final three choices uh and there's a, there's a, a lot of olympic podium style we got we got we got to the podium <laughs> there is a lot of variety in these top three I, i'm actually a little uh, surprised but you know let's do it guys so jeff take us through your number three okay so my number three is a movie that spent a lot of iterations on my list at number one wow I really 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 almost put this at number one number three I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Okay. We don't want any trouble. My computer was stolen, and this says that it's in there. I just want it back. There's no questions. So, can you get it? I can get these nuts. (laughs) You can get these nuts? All right, tough guy. You had your chance. Oh, so this is the netflix movie yeah uh starring elijah wood and melanie linsky uh kind of a, a coen brothers homage right um, i guess and yeah. yeah what what was it about this film that resonated with you so much i feel like this movie is 2017 to me it, and it is it is Everything I love about movies, it is uh, – I went back and actually listened a little bit to my review of this because it came out very early in the year. I think last January or February we were talking about it. Um, came out very early in the year. So I wanted to refresh and, and think – I wanted to make sure that my memory of loving it was as strong as actually loving it. And so I went back and re-listened to what I said. And what I said was it was as if Quentin Tarantino grew a conscience <laughs> and – and I think that that is apt. It is. It's got the spunk and the panache of a, a of a Tarantino movie. It's got that sort of a, a surprising violence and um, plotting that goes into dark places unexpectedly that I love from his work. But it also has something really beautiful to say about the world and about feeling. Uh, powerless and having so much passion inside you to make things better, but that being an impotent feeling because of just how overwhelming negativity is in the world. And I just, it feels like this movie is 2017 to me. It it is the movie that sums up. I mean, just the title alone (laughs) kind of says it, uh, it sums up that feeling of wanting to make things better and not understanding why everything around you conspires to undermine that. And I love the relationships in this movie. I love where it goes. I love there is a speech given by pretty much the worst person in this movie that I find to be one of the most beautiful speeches of 2017's in the cinema. It is it's a great movie that too few people have seen or are talking about. And part of the reason that I love putting it this high on my list is I hope it inspires some people to check it out because it's on Netflix now. Easy for you to watch. I don't feel at home in this world anymore. I adore this movie. 
Uh, great moment in that movie, Jeff, is when she meets this guy at a bar that's like, oh my gosh, we're into the same things. And then he just spoils something for her, like right there. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's just like, oh, we can't even have this small, nice thing without a dude spoiling yeah. something. And yeah. I realized and by saying that, beautiful. I might have spoiled the movie in some way for you, but you know. Uh, Thanks a lot, Dave. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Anyway, uh, I it did not resonate with me nearly as much as you, Jeff. I I, I wanted to love this movie. Macon Blair right directed it and stars in yeah. it. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of his work. I wanted to love this movie, uh, but yeah, I I think it's a very competent, well made movie. Uh, it just yeah just didn't connect with me on the way that I think it connected with you. So that's I don't feel at home in this world anymore. It's Jeff's number three film of 2017. Well, Devendra Hardwar, you and I again have uh-huh. the same movie for our number three choice. Synergy! <laughs> you know, Jeff, you keep using that word. I don't think you know what it means. <laughs> this is more simpatico. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our number three choice for 2017 is Blade Runner 2049. So, Devendra, this is really, we're really high up on the list now. Yeah. Why was Blade Runner 2049 your number three choice of the year? Because this movie's a miracle, guys. <laughs> like, this movie shouldn't exist in the way it does. Like, it is not only, like, a great science fiction film, but I think a worthy follow-up to the original Blade Runner. It really expands on the ideas that we explored there and in some way surpasses it, I'd say. Um, and that's that's quite a feat. Also, this movie is just gorgeous. Like, one, definitely one of the best cinematic experiences I've had this year. Um something that demanded to be seen on the big screen. This felt like if Dunkirk wasn't all about, you know, really fast edits and crazy action, this is more like it's giving us wonderful presentations that we just drink in for, you know, shots at last for a long, long time. Uh, So yeah, just enjoyed it overall. I think to me, this movie feels like pure cinema in a way. Uh, I think uh, noir for me, is always such a wonderful cinematic uh, genre. And this movie explores it uh, while also delving into, you know, deeper ideas around artificial intelligence and artificial life and what all of that means and the deeper meaning behind all that. Um, While also giving us, like, a beautiful broken world that is even somehow worse than the original Blade Runner. Like, the world is even more fucked than it was in that movie, which is, I I don't know, kind of astounding. But uh, I think ultimately really worked for me. Gosling, Dave Bautista, one of like his, probably his best performance in anything. And he's in this movie for like five minutes, but he is just fantastic. In the vast cinematic. uh... (laughs) Dude, he's been in a lot of movies. He's like two Guardians of the Galaxy movies, um, Bushwick, which is this crazy. I may talk about it later, but like he's been in a bunch of stuff. And here he, he has he's 54 credits on IMDb. Uh, of yeah. course, several of those credits have to do with wrestling. <laughs> Probably. But, uh, but there's he's also a bunch, of, yeah, there's a bunch of credits that yeah. don't have to do with anything. Yeah, so. Uh, you guys are not going to believe it. It's the, the greatest Dave Bautista performance in the history <laughs> okay let's just be clear like the way jeff is talking about it is extremely like diminishing of the performance but i think it actually is it is legitimately a good performance so i agree i agree and i'm a fan of him i'm a wrestling fan so i'm a fan of him i just thought it was a funny (laughs) thing to to say yeah so i mean this movie makes dave batista look good i think that is that's very much an accomplishment but also his own performance is fantastic in the same way that logan was a sign to me that maybe things can go right in terms of you know, people making original works and mm-hmm. or bold works and being rewarded for it. Blade Runner twenty forty nine was the opposite. I mean, this movie bombed. Uh, it made two hundred 
$258 million worldwide, $91 million in the United States. Uh, there's a series of tweets that Drew McWeeny made about it where he quoted this article from IndieWire where it's like Denis Villeneuve is still trying to understand the box office failure of Blade Runner 2049. It was maybe because people were not familiar enough with the universe. That's the IndieWire tweet. And then Drew McWeeny says, I love this movie, but let me break this one down for you. It's a three-hour Blade Runner sequel. Mystery solved, Denis. You know, and he's like, quote, yeah. I made a sequel to a box office disaster, and I was true to all the things that audiences did not connect with the first time. I also made it for a massive budget. I am mystified by the lack of commercial success. <laughs> um, you know, stick with the art, Denis, not with uh, yeah, your box office projections. I think, uh, you know, it, it is a huge bummer that pe- audiences did not connect with this in a big way. But I mean, wasn't this, this movie was what two hours and forty minutes long? Um, yeah, it's really long. It, yeah. It's a big ask uh, of people to watch. Uh, it's also a ponderous movie. This is not the Last Jedi. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, there's not a ton of like huge action scenes in this movie, uh, but it deals with the same ideas and concepts uh, that the original Blade Runner dealt with, and it does so in a way that's gore- like gobsmackingly gorgeous. It's thought-provoking, and there's a lot of amazing performances here to sink your teeth into as a viewer. So uh, Blade Runner 2049, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed our review with C. Robert Cargill of this film. would recommend you go check that out. But it's, it's a movie it, – I should have mentioned it's another movie that I watched twice in theater. So mm-hmm. I contributed $25 or whatever to that <laughs> $90 million domestic take. Um, I think uh, this is a movie that we'll still be talking about 20 years from now. I think – it's a movie that uh, is going to stand the test of time, even though it w- it's not recognized in its, it's, in its own day for its brilliance uh, from a box office perspective. I think, you know. And is there anything more Blade Runner than that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It will follow yeah. the spirit of Blade Runner by being a complete box office failure and then still being watched, uh, you know, in theaters 30 years from now. So Hopefully we won't have 10 different versions of it by then. Agreed. So, right. Agreed. We'll see. Although there were, there were rumors of like the extra long cuts too. So who knows? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, this is just really up there in terms of an experience of the theater that I really appreciated, especially watching mm-hmm. it at the Seattle Cinerama. Uh, was mind blowing, you know. Just the sound design too, like it, yeah. it, it did feel similar to Dunkirk, but not as like it's more of a slow, drawn out thing. The score didn't do as much for me as like Vangelis's original score, but there was still like the sound design of the score was even something that was kind of fascinating. It just hits you in the gut. Yeah, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, Devinder Hardwar, and my uh, number three film of 2017 all right getting close now number two movie well, let me just of- let me just say real quick though mm, yeah. I, I i didn't have this on my list it, it is uh it's number 11 for me mm. it really is mm. um so yeah i just wanted to highlight the fact all right that I well didn't put Jeff, on my you're list. still not I, you're still not forgiven for not including <laughs> i struggled i i don't think i mean if you compare it to arrival or sicario i i i don't think it holds up to those but it is an mm. amazing movie and i i wanted to put it on my list i just there's no room no room no room it was number 11 for me. All right. Number two time, Devinder Hardwar. So we, we had all, all three of us had different movies for number two. Which Devin, is good, yeah. Devinder, nice. take us through your number two, which is the same as my number nine. Ah. My number two is The Florida Project. Yeah. I got a videotape of the kids illegally entering the utility room. I got it. I'm a to talk to her. Captain Skin, you're out of here. 
It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We were doing an experiment. We were trying to get it back alive. That was my and, idea. And water balloons thrown at tourists? You can't fuck with tourists. They didn't tip us. Are you serious? No. Oh my God, this is unacceptable. I failed as a mother, Moni. You've disgraced me. Harley. Yeah, Mom, you're disgraced. And I'm going to talk to Ashley, by the way. When your friend puts you in charge of her kid, that kid becomes your responsibility. You ain't taking responsibility. And you got that one, too? She's from Futureland, right? Oh, whatevs. You gotta relax, my man. You gonna redo my expense reports with your whatevs? Your kid killed my night. I wanted to watch the ball game. You are gonna pay me for three hours that I gotta work later? Hey, guys, pay the man for his three hours. I don't have any I don't money. Have any. I've only seen this movie once. And few movies this year have stuck with me in this way because what this movie is it is it's a movie about you know kids um in a motel in florida and at the same time this movie is about so many bigger things it's about you know the income disparity of america it's about um kids living through poverty and kind of what they have to deal with uh it's about drug abuse in a way it's about it's about the resilience of of kids the resilience of kids yes 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 yeah Uh, like 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 how they can uh, survive really challenging situations and still come out the mm-hmm. other side, you know? So, yeah, yeah, it, it is at the same, it is definitely one of the most heartbreaking things I've seen this year. Uh, but also one of the most hopeful things. And I know you weren't a fan of that, that final shot, Dave, but I think that that encapsulates everything this movie is trying to say. It's, uh, won't even say what it is here. It's certainly not literal. I'd say, but when you watch that and you watch this movie, I think it is a perfect, perfect end cap to what this experience is. And kind of shows like Sean Baker um, with Tangerine gave us another look at like, uh, you know, a world we don't typically see of like uh, trans women and uh, prostitutes in L.A. And making us feel something about that world and telling us something and showing us something new. I think this movie, in a way, does a lot of that. And I said this during my review, but I think this is a perfect follow up to American Honey, another film that kind of explored, um, you know, the underseen sides of America, and especially of people who are just struggling to get by and what kids have to do and teenagers kind of have to do sometimes. Um, I, I found it all just really powerful and really it's a very 2017 story. I think, you know, we're dealing with a lot of things, but I think income inequality is certainly one of the biggest ones, even if, uh, you know, I think you could boil down to a lot of the issues we're dealing with in America to this and, you know, how much we prioritize you know, kids, or we don't prioritize kids. I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, it's a really powerful film for me. I really enjoyed it as well. Uh, that's why I put it as my number nine. Uh, I think it, it, Sean Baker is phenomenal with uh, first-time actors. You know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of people in this movie that haven't acted um, at all. And uh, and it the same is true with Tangerine as well. It seems yeah. impossible yeah. What, he, what he managed to pull off. It, yeah. it seems yeah. impossible. Uh, the Florida Project is also a beautiful film. Uh, it was shot. You, you know, it's actually interesting. Like several movies this year on our top ten list were shot on film, uh, yeah. and that's kind of not super common these days. But uh, Florida Project was shot on film. There's another movie coming up in in the rest of our list that is also shot on film. So uh, I thought it was a really fascinating, heartbreaking look into these people's lives. 
and I thought it was yeah executed really well with some very uh, naturalistic performances by all involved. So great film, great choice for number two, Devendra, and it was my number nine. Um, so let's see what else we got. Number two, Jeff Kanata. What is your number two film of uh, 2017? I struggled with this um, because <laughs> I just had to look at myself honestly and say, when I look back at this year, what are the experiences in the cinema that mm-hmm. I'm going to cherish and how highly do I cherish it? Mm-hmm. And the honest answer is that my number two is The Last Jedi. And that is because it exceeded my expectations on almost every level for all of the faults that I have brought up in our <laughs> two two hour discussions on that movie. Uh, they are completely overwhelmed by the feelings that I had while watching it uh, twice now and I will watch it again uh, and again. Uh, it is, I think, still the best Star Wars movie. Uh, I, I don't know if it's my favorite Star Wars movie, but I think it is the best Star Wars movie. It is a Star Wars movie that actually has something to say uh, that's larger than just the Star Wars mythology or saga. It is actually speaking to the world and uh, it is of its time and also a rip-roaring adventure that is I, – I find thrilling and satisfying and emotional – the the experience of watching The Last Jedi, the, the two times that I did, ranks among my favorite experiences in a, thin, in a cinema at all, ever. It is – I was moved. I was uh, jumping up and down in my seat. It is everything I could hope for from a series that has meant so much to me as a human being ever since I was a, a, a very young child. It is – it, it seems like a wish come true to have this franchise mean what it means, uh, what it meant when I was a kid again. Uh, and for that, for all those reasons, I can't help but put it this high on my list. That's The Last Jedi. It's your choice for number two, Jeff. Uh, and Devinder, I think this is also on your list at number nine, yeah. right? It was my number nine, yeah. And it is uh, – I definitely struggled uh, in terms of where to put this on my list or even – if I should put in my top 10 at all, but when I really thought about it and thought about like what Ryan Johnson actually accomplished here, he is pushing star Wars into territory. We've never seen before, uh, with stylistic touches. We've never seen before. He is, he's like just doing so much. Um, as a film geek, I really appreciate his nods to Kurosawa and his nods to classic filmmaking. Um, you know, there, there is a wonderful, the opening sequence of the casino sequence is like a nod to a silent film, uh, that has a great one shot. Um, there are so many things going on here. It's a beautiful film. It's well acted, uh, thematically fascinating. And I think in many ways, even though star Wars fans don't realize it, it is fixing problems that have existed with the series from the beginning. Like, I think it is doing so much work while at the same time being really entertaining, uh, really moving and fantastic and dramatic. Um, And I hope it sets up, you know, this movie sets up the series to be something really new and different. And I hope the next film follows up with that. All right. Uh, Well, that's Devendra's number nine, Jeff's number two. It's Star Wars The Last Jedi. My number two movie of the year is I, Tanya. 
I, Tanya. Uh, this is Craig Gillespie's movie written by Steve Rogers about the life of Tanya Harding. And as we discussed last week on the podcast, it's like if Fargo and Goodfellas had a baby and the baby was about the life of Olympic figure skater Tanya Harding. I mean, it is a technically dazzling movie, extremely well acted. It touches on themes like classism and domestic abuse in a way that's thought-provoking and moving. Uh, I just love this movie and I feel like uh, people should give it a chance, check it out. It's not what you think it will be, uh, and that's why I'd recommend it as my number two movie of the year. That's I, Tanya. Jeff, I think you're the only other one on this podcast that's seen I, Tanya, right? Yes, uh, I also enjoyed it. Uh, I think we're going to talk at length about that movie on at the show point, at some point. In the future, yeah. 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 Um, and uh, yeah, I, I definitely don't think it, it compares to any of the other films on my top ten, uh, but it is certainly a movie worth seeing and lots of fun. And Based on its subject matter, far better than it ever deserved to be. I mean, you're talking about subject matter, which is ostensibly, you know, uh, tabloid quality. Uh, but this is taken to that level of uh, real cinematic. Uh, there's a there's a style and sensibility that it, I think outstrips its subject matter. And, and, it, and that makes it very fun. It is a very fun movie to watch. All right. Well, that's my number two. It's I, Tanya. And finally, gentlemen, we have reached the top of the mountain. Number one movie of uh, 2017. And, you know, guys, I was, I was looking over our number one movie of 2016. Uh, we all had different movies last year, I believe. Uh, I put The Handmaiden, Jeff, uh, I think you put Arrival, Davindra, you mm -hmm. put Moonlight. We all had different movies. And the year before mm -hmm. that, we all had the same movie. Uh, I think we all put Mad Max Fury Road as the number one movie of the year. Yeah. Yes. Year, yeah? Yes. So uh, this. By the year... way, Mad Max Fury Road is also my best movie of this year and last year and, <laughs> and next year. <laughs> Forever. Forever. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this year, uh, kind of a mixed bag. Jeff, why don't you walk us through your number one movie of 2017? <laughs> And again, I will say, as I've said over and over, uh, this mixed around, and I had a really hard time uh, coming up with a final numbering solution. And like Devendra has said a couple of times, this is a movie I saw very recently, and I worry that it's the fact that it's so recent in my mind elevates it more than it deserves. I don't know. I, but I will say I think it is the most incredible movie I've seen this year. Uh, as of right this moment. So I'm going to say three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri is my number one film of 2017. Hey, fuckhead. What? Don't say what? Dixon, when she comes in calling you a fuckhead, and don't you Shut come up! in here. You get over here. No. You get over here. All right. What? Don't, Dixon! What? I'm you do not allow a member of the public to call you a fuckhead in this station house. That's what I'm doing. I'm taking care of it in my own way, actually. Now, get out of my ass. Mrs. Hayes, have a seat. What is it I can do for you today? Where's Denise Watson? Denise Watson's in the clank. On what charge? Possession. Of what? Two marijuana cigarettes. Big ones. When's the bail hearing? I asked the judge not to give her bail. On account of her previous marijuana violations, and the judge said, sure. You fucking prick. Do not call an officer of law a fucking prick in his own station house, Mrs. Hayes. Or anywhere, actually. What's with a new attitude, Dixon? Your mama been coaching you? No. My mama doesn't do that. 
Take them down. You hear me? I think this is about as perfect a script as you can execute. It is everything that happens reflects on everything else. Everything that happens is both important in the moment it happens, but also sets up something for later in the most unexpected way. The roles you think everyone fits into are absolutely shattered throughout it. It is a story of redemption and forgiveness on a very gut-wrenching, powerful level. Uh, Francis McDormand's performance is hands down the best performance by any human being in film this year that I've seen. And that's a year with Daniel Day-Lewis doing stuff. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. She brings such a truth and a rawness and a stripping away of any pretense. And she is just the most badass, hardcore, nothing to lose woman I've ever seen. And yet dark and heartbreaking and relatable. It is a, a vulnerable performance, even as it is hard and hardened. I, I can't, even and Sam Rockwell is amazing in this movie and Woody Harrelson is amazing in this movie where it goes it just walloped me um and it's it, it it's like a prism this this script everything reflects on everything else mm-hmm. and all of the things you think are just there for one reason are there for many reasons it is it is a movie i can't get out of my head i love Three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Francis McDormand's performance in this movie is definitely like it is. It is basically the Samuel L. Jackson quote from <laughs> Pulp Fiction, right? It is. She is striking down everything here with furious <laughs> anger, and yeah. she, that's it. Like that. That is. She makes this movie for me. I think that core plot of everything there works so well. Um, and I did like the unexpected turns around that. Uh, I don't know. I'm still like working through my feelings about how this film treats, uh, you know, the black characters in the story, which sometimes feel like they're sidelined in a way. But I think this core story of what she's dealing with, of like sexual abuse and, um, you know, how, how this town is basically kind of in a way fighting to hide it or hide investigating it, uh, is, is really powerful. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like I, I basically, what I'm struggling with is, I have a lot of negative things to say about this film, but I don't mm-hmm. know if I should use this opportunity to do that because I don't want to <laughs> rain like, on yeah. Jeff. I don't want to rain on Jeff's parade. You yeah, know, like yeah. Jeff's had a great time watching this movie and he thinks it's really profound. I don't want to use this as an opportunity to say like, here's like ten reasons why this movie's uh, really problematic and and mm-hmm. arguably bad. Um, but at the same time. I just don't know if I can let this pass. Uh, I'll just say, Jeff, here's what I'll say. My journey with this movie is when I left the theater, I thought, man, that was great. Love the the whole movie. Francis Mm -hmm. McDormand's awesome. You know, the ending is really thought-provoking. Love the movie. And the more I thought about it and the more I read about it, the more I'm just like, you know what? This movie really did make me feel gross. 
and, mm-hmm. in some ways. And at the time when I was watching it, I was so impressed by the screenwriting and and the the monologues that these characters are giving and and how uh, uh, how skillfully some of these sequences are executed that I could kind of push those things aside when I was watching the movie. But then thinking back and reflecting on it, I'm just like, you know what? No, I, I can't push those things aside. Like, I can't fully embrace this movie in a way that many critics are. Uh, and that's why, unfortunately, it's not my top ten list. But I, I, I just needed to say that. I hope you don't find it diminishes your position at all. I think uh, it's a totally respectable choice for number one. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, yeah. it's just a movie that, like, bothers me more and more the more I think about it. Um, I would love to know why that is, but mm-hmm. I respect you saying it. I, I'm, I'm taking a, you know... Well, the, the conversation about this movie was really interesting because there was like the festival reaction was generally, you know, really positive and people really liked it. And I think as more critics got to see it, uh, some of the underlying problems of like how this movie deals with race, like uh, the treatment of black characters in this town uh, is an important part of the story. But in a way, it feels sidelined to you. And because that redemption storyline feels unearned sometimes. Oh, yeah, because the, the, the because redemption storyline just feels like, yeah. It, it it pains me. Like I'm I'm in pain thinking about it right now. Like, but you, you know what? Like I don't, that's the thing too. Like I don't I don't want to sound like we're just shitting on the movie. Yeah, it's just, that's the thing. I don't want to. Yeah, because it, it, it is it's a multiple thing, right? Because I think this movie handles the idea of of sexual assault and uh, against women. I think really I think it handles all that well. It fails in other respects. I don't know if that drags down the whole movie for me, uh, especially when you know we're judging art on multiple levels here. That's the thing. Like the conversation has gotten really, I don't know, really muddy around this film. Well, one of the things that I love most about this movie is that it is all about shades of gray. Mm-hmm. Every everybody does despicable things, and everybody does beautiful things. Everybody, even the people that seem so clearly defined clearly outlined as awful people do beautiful things and even the people who seem so beautiful and uh, and uh, relatable and understandable do awful <laughs> awful things despicable things yeah there's yeah. no one including spared. mildred including mildred it's, yeah yes absolutely uh and i would love to have a, a longer more spoilery discussion about that but that's what's so great about this movie is nobody is spared there, it is ugly warts and all with everyone, but yet also yep. there are no easy scapegoats and no easy way out of, of any of this. It's just human pain and difficulty, and yet we all have to fucking live together and coexist, and we have to – like that's what's so beautiful about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. these are ugly things, and there are people that should not be redeemed, and yet we all have to live on the same planet together. And that's kind of I think what the movie is saying is like there are there are beautiful parts of ugly people and ugly parts of beautiful people, and that's the world. And it's h- hard. It's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's what the why the movie just walloped me in such a big way, man. It, I I loved it. All right, uh, that's three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, it's Jeff's choice for number one movie of the year. Let's get to our number one choice for favorite film of the year, Devinder Hardwar. Uh, so Devinder and I yes. both had the same number one movie of the year. Yeah, one movie. <laughs> one movie we haven't even talked about yet. We haven't even mentioned the mm. name of this film yet. So, mm. yeah. and that movie is Get Out. I owe you an apology. How rude of me to have touched your belongings without asking. 
Oh, no, it's cool. I was just confused. Well, I can assure you there was no funny business. Allow me to explain. I lifted your cellular phone to wipe down the dresser, and it accidentally came undone. Yeah, I... I Rather than meddle with it further, I left it that way. How foolish of me. It's fine. I wasn't trying to snitch. Snitch? Rat you out. Tattletale. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't you worry about that. I can assure you, I don't answer to anyone. Right. All I know is sometimes, but if there's too many white people, I get nervous, you know. something that's not my experience not at all the armitages are so good to us they treat us like family my number seven it was my number seven also uh jeff's number seven. oh yeah there we go and i appeared recently on film spotting and uh, I gave a shout out to I, Tanya as my favorite film of the year. It mm-hmm. is my number two. But as I'm thinking about making this list, I mean, Get Out is the movie that I think um, yeah. ha- has made more of a cultural impact than any other movie this year. It and, defines this year. Yeah, it defines America, this year in, in a lot of history. ways. Like, like yeah. when, when we think back to like – when you're looking over – Ten years from now, we're looking over movies of 2017. This is – like if you're like, show me a movie that sums up 2017. This is the movie I would show them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the, the movie people were talking about. This is a movie that reflects our times. Even from a business perspective, this is a Blumhouse movie made for a very little amount of money. It grossed over $200 million domestically. Uh, it's given us – Things in like it's introduced concepts into our lexicon, like the sunken place that I think people will be using yes. for years. Uh, I, I just think how well Jordan Peele conceived and executed this horror film uh, about you know this guy visiting his girlfriend's family and all the uh, subtle and explicit forms of racism that he encounters uh, is a, a great summary of mm-hmm. uh, the tensions that are still at play. Even today, you know, the way he's described it many times in interviews is that after the election of Obama, we were living in this post-racial lie, that the, this concept that uh, racism was largely not a problem anymore because Obama was the president of the United States. That many people had told themselves this lie mm-hmm. and that he created this film as a way of illustrating, no, it's not gone away. It's still a huge problem. And when he was, when he was shooting, you know, writing and shooting the movie, he did not know that uh, Trump would become the president of the United States. Yeah, you know? it's such um, a prescient film in a way. Right. Yeah. And, and that Trump would do so by stoking a lot of xenophobic fears uh, mm-hmm. and our fear of the other and fear of uh, the unknown and fear of people of different color. Uh, mm-hmm. And so 
the way this movie touches upon those things in a way that fits into kind of a conventional horror film narrative, uh, I just think is absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, I think when we talk about cultural impact, right, this amorphous idea, because as we've been talking about cultural Avatar, relevance, as it cultural were. relevance, yeah, yeah, all of that. As we talk about that, this is this is the defining movie of it. You say the sunken place. You make a short, like you can make a short reference to something that's happening in Get Out. Um, it it is something that I think a lot of people can relate to, and we can all kind of yeah, we can all kind of find some way to tie into our lives. Um, you know, that's it. Like I think to me that's important. I hope this film uh, wins Best Picture. Because I think this is this is it. This is like the movie that defines so much of what's happening now and of our culture right now. And at the same time, it is still genuinely funny, uh, like so much of Jordan Peele's work. Uh, it is genuinely scary. It is, on a technical level, a wonderful... It's a genre exercise, uh, similar to something like Cabin in the Woods, except it's also like a, you know, something with a greater societal message, which I think is fascinating as well, too. And uh, honestly, just this idea, too, of um, it's not representing the sort of racism you typically see on screen and the racism we typically talk about. It is not just like the, you know, the robe wearing Ku Klux Klan members. It's not just something you'd consider maybe from the South, right? Right. It's it's that there are other forms of racism and microaggressions that that people of color need to deal with uh, on a regular basis. Uh, Jeff Kanata, you listed this movie as your number seven, you said, right? Yes, or indeed. Number yeah. seven. Jeff's, get out, uh, Jeff's number seven was Get Out as well. Uh, I concur with uh, so much of what you guys have said. It is, uh, it is an incredible movie and an incredible accomplishment um, really coming from this small budget sort of under mm-hmm. the radar thing and really breaking out and being a movie of our time and for our time. It is uh, – it's – all of that, but also wildly entertaining. Mm-hmm. It's so fun. Such a fun movie to watch. I mean, yeah. it just it gets you in the place that you're supposed to be gotten when you go see a horror genre movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Like from that very first shot, it, it is doing the things that that, move, that kind of movie needs to do as well. Uh, so it doesn't get sidetracked by being something larger. It just sort of organically becomes something larger. Um, yeah, and yeah I, I really, really loved Get Out, and uh, I think it is it is an important film and really a great film for 2017, for sure. Also, one of those rare movies where every single performance is, like, greatest of all time. Like, every, <laughs> every performance is MVP in this film. Like, Daniel Kaluuya, a guy um, I've been following for a while on British TV, he also uh, starred in my favorite Black Mirror episode, uh, 15 Million Merits. He is a powerhouse. Like just what he is dealing with. Like yeah. I saw him in Sicario like, recently. Very good in that too. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's dealing with the subtle implications of racism, but also at the once he realizes he's in a horror movie, like shit gets real, <laughs> and he really, I think he really gets into that. But also Allison Williams representing this type of like, uh, I, I don't know, like um, a certain type of racism too. That I think is really fascinating. Catherine Keener is terrifying. Bradley Whitford is hilarious. Uh, Caleb Landry, Landry Jones in like I think a defining role of his creepiness, <laughs> you know. Uh, Stephen Root, a guy who I typically, you know, we, we remember him as Milton from Office Space, but he's also played a lot of like uh, 
I, I think, uh, well-to-do characters. There's a certain nobleness to him that I think shows like how even somebody like him, who you may side with as you're watching the film, and turns out like, yeah, yeah, maybe they could have problems too. Lakeith Stanfield, who we opened the film with him, he is one of my favorite actors right now, especially after uh, Short Term 12. Um, he is just terrifying. Like his, he is at one point is playing basically the role of somebody from like a twilight zone episode or, um, you know, invasion of the body snatchers or something like that. Like perfect. Like feels almost like cult sci-fi or something, what he's doing in this movie. There's just so much going on here. I find it endlessly rewatchable on a technical level. It's incredibly well-made. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Anything else guys? Yeah. Uh, a few other things, First of all, I, I listened to the commentary of this film, and I strongly recommend it. Uh, it's it, it shows you how much thought went into this film, like th- things that you absorb on a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordan Peele was putting a lot of thought into. There's that scene when you first see Georgina, you know, the uh, the maid uh, of, of the house, and you enter this house, and she's like waiting there, smiling for you. Mm-hmm. And he, he was saying how like that scene was you know, inspired by The Shining, you know, with uh, uh, Danny turning the corner and seeing the two sisters. You know, like there's just something very terrifying about entering a room and then someone's waiting there for you. You know what I mean? Like this, it's very scary. <laughs> uh, and so many, many details like that throughout the commentary, like the helmets that the helmet that the guy wore in the first scene. You know, like all that stuff. A lot of thought was put into it, and it just really, even for something that's like relatively small scale, you know, this movie is only a few million dollars to shoot, you really get an appreciation of, of how symbolism and color and, uh, you know, mise-en-scene, all these things mm-hmm. combine together to create this movie in yeah. a way that, like, I, I didn't even appreciate without watching the commentary. So. How, how the sunken place is represented, I think, yeah. is astounding. I think a, a lesser director would, you know, there, there are ways to do that. I think in a simpler way, maybe, but the idea of falling into an infinite blackness while seeing your life, you know, uh, happening in front of you. Uh, I don't know. Like that's something I cannot get out of my head. And it's a visual description. Like it feels like, uh, something you'd see in a painting that you would have to like, you know, you'd spend a lot of time deconstructing or something, but yeah, it feels like something fresh and unusual for a film. Other thing I wanted to say about uh, Get Out is you mentioned Stephen Root's character, and I do think that that mm-hmm. character uh, is is really interesting. I, I saw a, twi- a, a Twitter yeah. storm about that character recently that I didn't have a chance to. Uh, I, I don't know who exactly said this, but apo- apologies to whoever said this. But something about like how that character wants the the black experience without actually having gone through it, or wants to convey the black experience without actually having gone through it. Uh, and I thought that's just a kind of really fascinating side tangent to uh, the broader horrifying story that the, the movie's trying to tell. Um, so I, I think there's many layers to this film, uh, and some of them were pointed out during our review that we had of this movie uh, when we podcast about it many months ago. But it's a movie that definitely still stays in my mind and uh, that ha- has a kind of – has created a kind of shorthand to talk about – uh, a lot of racism that's going on in our society today. So, uh, so get out our number one movie of 2017, uh, and a movie that I think is really uh, a, a compelling film that if you haven't seen yet, you should go see definitely. Mm-hmm. So, okay, and that brings us to the end of our top ten films of 2017. Now, before we wrap up, 
There are a couple of things we want to mention. First of all, honorable mentions. Movies that barely didn't make the top 10 of 2017. Devinder, you have a whole list here. Why don't you just rattle them off for us? I'll just go through real quick. So yeah, my uh, my honorable mentions. These are all pretty much my 11 through 20s. And uh, give any given day could be in my top 10. Uh, personal Shopper, Mudbound, Shape of Water, Your Name, A Ghost Story, War for the Planet of the Apes, Baby Driver, Okja, Columbus, which is on Hulu right now. Everybody just go watch Columbus. Mother and The Lost City of Z. This is actually 11 choices, but whatever. Too many good movies. <laughs> Jeff, Too anything that movies. barely didn't make your list? I know Blade Runner was on there, right? Yeah. Um, I would also add Baby Driver. Uh, Free Fire. I actually was thinking oh, about yeah. it. Free yeah, Fire. Solid yeah. movie. Um, the big one for me that I really wish I had had more room for was Last Flag Flying. Mm. That's a movie that really – Richard Linklater's new movie, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's really lovely. Um, and also um, Split, just like the, yeah. the, the experience of seeing Split. Yeah. There's no way it makes my top ten, but like I kind of just wanted to mention it again because – what an experience. What an I forgot experience. that was this year, too. But, yeah, that was yeah. tremendous. Uh, and um, Icarus, the the documentary Icarus, I think, is a, a honorable mention. Uh, Dave, you talked about not having enough documentaries. I didn't see a ton of documentaries this year either, but mm-hmm. Icarus certainly was a powerful one. I don't think it's, you know, the best executed documentary I've ever seen. Uh, certainly that goes more to Vietnam, uh, which is definitely a movie and belongs in the movie list. Mm. Uh but uh, no, Icarus, I thought, was really one of those ones that has informed my life in a very profound way this year and one I, I highly recommend. And also, lastly, I will say Valerian. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know what? It's not going to make yeah. – it's not, it's not the best movie I saw, but man, did it swing for the fences. And man, are there sequences in that movie that are just – absolutely balls to the wall. Awesome. And, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people probably are listing it as one of their worst movies of the year. Not me. I loved watching Valerian and I I would argue the first 15 minutes of Valerian is one of the best movies of the year. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah, Uh, It's an incredible, it's an incredible, it's a movie that is problematic and has all kinds of rough edges and, yeah, it's not great. I mean, I think just purely on a casting level, it's, it's, Mm. it's, it's got issues, but man, there are sequences that it will never leave my imagination. It's it's wild. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll just list a couple of things that you haven't mentioned. Uh, first of all, I, you, I know you said Shape of Water. I'm surprised Shape of Water didn't end up on any of our lists. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it, in my honorable mentions. But it yeah. was very good. It was very good. It just like there's other movies that I think we all liked a little bit better. Um, Coco, I would say, is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, as as I mentioned, Molly's Game barely didn't make my top ten. Baby Driver had the best editing uh, in films this year, in my opinion. Um, and uh, put Spider-Man Homecoming on there as a movie that I really enjoyed. Oh, wow. A Ghost mm-hmm. Story really conveyed the passage of time in ways that I haven't seen before on film. Uh, War for the Planet of the Apes did some things really well. And uh, Wind River. Wind River. Movie. Yes. I, don't yeah. think you've mentioned, I just watched I did, that. Fantastic. I did too. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's good. It's an odd – we should talk about that at some, at some point. But it's – for me, I found it to be kind of weird that it's like this mystery, and then it's like, oh, here's the solution to the mystery, guys. Just we'll just take a second. We're just going to show you that. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but but uh, yeah, definitely a powerful, interesting movie. Yeah. Um, so those were my uh, uh, honorable mentions. All right, uh, we're we're running super long, so let's do this. You know, something 
that uh, they do on the Film Spotting SVU podcast that I really appreciate is uh, they list their their favorite movie of 2018 that they think is going to be their favorite mm-hmm. movie of 2018, right? Um, so do we have a uh, a guess for what? So actually, we we have two uh, two movies, right? Like most anticipated film of 2018, like a movie you're most looking forward to, and what you mm-hmm. think will be your favorite film of 2018. Um, so most anticipated film of 2018, best film of 2018. As we look forward, most anticipated film, Defender Hardware. Uh, that would be Black Panther. I mean, are, are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah, that movie looks insane. That cast is awesome. And uh, after Creed, I will watch anything Ryan Coogler does. How about you, Jeff Kanata? Well, since Devinger took Black Panther, I'm definitely very excited for that movie. But uh, it's Avengers Infinity War for me. Um, it's the culmination of like everything I've ever believed in, <laughs> in my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing it. I hope it is uh, everything and a bag of chips. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to Mission Impossible 6, to be honest. This is the first time that yeah. a director has returned to uh, the franchise, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Macquarie. Macquarie yeah. directed two films. And they, I love how they keep one-upping themselves, film after film. And I just feel like there's going to be some stuff in, the, in that movie. That... What, what is next? He has to go to space, <laughs> like, yeah. a, after a point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'll see. Uh, but I'm really psyched about that. Okay. What do you think is going to – as we're recording this a year from today – what do you think will be your number one film of 2018 so we can see how wrong we were? <laughs> uh, Devinder Hardware, your number one film of 2018. A Wrinkle in Time because I, I completely trust in Ava DuVernay. Mm. Uh, and yeah, the, you, you're, you're psyched by the trailer of that mm-hmm. movie? Yeah. yeah. All right. Casting everything. Uh, for me, it's Annihilation, the Alex Garland uh, movie. Uh, he obviously did an amazing job with Ex Machina and I'm looking forward to seeing what he does next. Yep. Uh, especially with Natalie Portman starring in it. Uh, Jeff Kanata, how about you? I have no idea. Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm definitely at a disadvantage in this category, not watching trailers, because I have no, no clue of, <laughs> of the quality of stuff coming up. But uh, a couple of movies uh, definitely feel like they might be contenders, but I'll most likely be wrong. Uh, Isle of Dogs, the new Wes Anderson. I love Wes Anderson. I love the fantastic Mr. Fox. So what, what could go wrong? Isle of Dogs. And uh, The Irishman, which is the next Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro joint uh that is i think exclusive to netflix right yeah 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 that's right yeah Yeah. uh all right well let's check back in a year guys and i'll use your choices (laughs) to shame you um so i think that's gonna wrap us up for uh this episode hope you guys enjoyed it uh thanks for listening to us for yet another year i think this is the 10th time davindra and i have done this together jeff it's probably like our fifth time doing it together or something like that um many many years uh that we've been recording slash filmcast episodes and doing top tens and we appreciate you sticking with us for for all that time so yeah. lots to look forward to in 2018 not quite as much it seems to look forward to as there was <laughs> to look forward to in 2017 um <laughs> but uh, i still think it'll be a good year for movies so uh find more episodes of this podcast slash filmcast.com email us slash filmcast at gmail.com our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from Kyle Hillinger. And uh, our slash film court bumper comes from Simon M. Harris. In the meantime, uh, stay tuned to hear what we'll be doing next week. But Jeff Kanata, where can we find more of your work on the internet this week? Oh, why not follow me on Twitter? I'm at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. A bunch of shows that I do. If you want to hear me give my top video games of the year, we recorded uh, my show DLC which you can find at 5by5.tv slash DLC. We did an episode uh, this last week with our 
top games of the year, and we're talking this week about our predictions for 2018, which is always a lot of fun because we listen back to the predictions that we made last year, and we listen to how wrong we were. So you can find that at fiveby5.tv slash DLC. How about you, Davindra? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Davindra, and I write about tech at engadget.com. Uh, I'll be out next week for CES, so follow that madness. Yeah. I'm sorry, Davindra. Yeah, be, be well. Be safe. Uh, I will try to stay uh, healthy and yes. just try to focus on the cool stuff. Uh, find all my stuff at davechen.net. Follow me at davechensky. That's davechensky on Twitter. Uh, and next week, Jeff Kanata and I will be uh, uh, joined by my fiance, most likely, to talk about Itania. Nice. So yeah, should be a good time. Should be and a good time. Probably some Last Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually right. So uh, thanks for listening to the official podcast of slashfilm.com. We'll see you later. We watch the movies.